Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Well That H12 Part 2 of our Julio Claudian Dynasty. I'm here again with Lindsay Powell, has written Germanicus, and Marcus Agrippa, among many other books. I think you've been working on one, I understand, as we talked about last time, a book on Tiberius. And we left last episode where we began speaking about the reign of Caligula. And of course, I want to begin with Caligula, go a little bit back and talk about his upbringing on Capri and how he lost his other family members where his mother was exiled. And eventually died, and what happened to his other brothers as well, because they really the only ones who survived were his sisters, whom we are going to talk about, of course, in, in when later on in his reign, which he began very close to, if not, or according to some rumors, very, very close to. So let's begin with Caligula coming to Capri and losing his family. I think we have to sort of bring in the character here of Lucius Ilius Sejanus or Sejanus because um, the arrival of the young Caius that is, is known by the nickname Caligula, he arrives on Capri pretty much after Sejanus is basically arrested and executed. Uh, and, I, and I think we talked about him in the last episode, but yeah. the, the fate of his family was really part of the, the manipulation for what we can gather from Tacitus principally, um, by Sejanus. So, so if you recall, Sejanus seemed to have ambitions um, for going above where he was in Roman society. Um, he'd been the trusted advisor, the gatekeeper of, of things in the administration that Tiberius had. Um, he was basically his right-hand man in the same way that Marcus Agrippa was to Augustus. And in the same way that Augustus trusted Agrippa, uh, Tiberius trusted Sejanus, if I use the English pronunciation. Sejanus probably is more correct in Latin. Um, and for 15 years, it seems from at least Tiberius's point of view, there was not much evidence of anything going wrong. But for the people back in Rome on the Palatine Hill, principally the family of the descendants of Germanicus, his sons, uh, Drusus Nero and, and for example, uh, Caligula amongst them, uh, and his, and his sisters, uh, things appear to have been pretty grim. And there was, a, there was a, an affair, of course, between Sejanus and, uh, I think it was, uh, Lavilla, was it? And, um, that, that led ultimately to the, to the murdering, and Tiberius didn't realize this until much later, the murdering of Drusus the Younger, uh, who was also called Drusus Julius Caesar, just to confuse things, there were several of those in the family. But but he was he was the natural son of um, of, of Tiberius, and and 
that was a big loss to him. And Tebris never seemed to come over as being the cuddly guy and the family man. But the death of his son did affect him. And when he discovered later that, in fact, he had been murdered, um, I, I, I think that was a, was, a, was a body blow to him because he was prepared to accept that it might have been sickness or death by natural causes. But to find that it was an act of a crime was something else. And then finally, when all of this behind the scenes darkness, which he's been apparently oblivious to, and we can we can discuss whether that was true or not, but the sources seem to create the impression that Tiberius was not aware ensconced in his uh, one of maybe 12 villas in Capri, um, that finally... Well, was his son, by the way, was that his son from his first marriage or the second marriage? Uh, it, it, the, the first marriage. Um, so it was through uh, with, with Sonia Agrippina. And um, he, did, he had a child through Julia, uh, who was the daughter of uh, Augustus, but that child died. And that contributed partly, by the way, to the collapse of marriage. So when he, I believe, was in a quincum on campaign in Illyricum, uh, he received the news that, uh, that the baby had died. And, you know, quite frankly, it seems to be that that, that broke them amongst all the other things that, that he was learning or going to be learning about Julia at that point. So um, to then lose his only son w- was a loss because in the grand scheme of things, if you remember the way it was queued up uh, back in the time that uh, he had just started in 1814, Germanicus is very healthy. His son is alive. And, you know, he, there are several people in play. So a grip of... Things seem to be going upwards for Tiberius at that moment, Yeah, uh, but, but it looks like in AD 14, there are several people that could potentially be successors. Mm. And there's no suggestion at all that any of the children of, of, of Germanicus might be one of those people that later. Mm. But it, in the years that Sejanus um, begins to do his, I guess, dirty work, if that if that's what it was, and... And you have to remember, in the way that Tacitus writes his history, he always sort of starts with this idea of, of, of a man doing good, and then it's there's this decay. You know, so for example, in, in the case of Tiberius, he starts off as being the soldier, the the, 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 the actually quite noble, senate-friendly Roman princeps, but then it all goes terribly wrong, and it goes terribly wrong partly because Germanicus dies, who's a good influence, and then Sejanus is that is that. Uh, is the worm, if you will, that that, uh, that that drives into the core of it. And in the end, he becomes a despot and a tyrant. And interesting enough, when, when he does finally die, um, which, of course, is in 1837, so that's some years after Sir James, because, in fact, I think uh, he, he dies in 26, I think. So in those intervening years, which is where your question was, that's where Caius is spending his time. So he's in his late teens at this point, going into his early 20s. So these are important years, impressionable years. But again, it points to the fact what was really happening in Capri. And well, we talked about this last week. We sort of suggested various ideas. But quite frankly, we don't really know. Um, the, most, the, the most benign case is that there was, a, there was the friends of Tiberius and they just got poetry and plays and philosophy and they looked into the sky every night and <laughs> did astrology, maybe not so much astronomy. Um, on the worst side of things, it was debauchery and cruelty and sadism. Um, and I can't tell you really honestly which it was because the sources are very biased and they would they would tend to tell you it was on the, on the debauchery side. And, and I 
kind of don't believe that, but I've not really got much evidence to be able to tell you otherwise. So if that's mm. the what's the what's the reason for this bias? Was this the Flavian pro- propaganda at the time that didn't want to do? Well, it certainly plays into the uh, the optics of the Flavian family, Vespasian, uh, Titus, Domitian, uh, as being um, much better than the previous family. Uh, and yet, oh, by the way, under Titus, he's actually minting coins, which, for example, have the image of Augustus and, and, and for example, um, uh, Agrippa. And I think there might even be one or two uh, with other people, like possibly uh, Germanicus. So so they, they go back into the fact and they do pick people they think are worthy of uh, mm. commemoration and memorialization in that way. Iberius was but, not one of those. Uh, I don't. I don't believe that is the case. That's that's right. And um, you know, the, the question is why. Well, again, you look back. I mean, so 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 interesting enough. So Augustus is deified, Claudius is deified, Tiberius is not. But he also wanted it to be that way. He didn't want to be deified. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think he found it very irritating that uh, he'd get deputations from places like uh, the Spanish provinces saying, you know, we would love to be able to open a temple. And his answer was, no, 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 not now, not ever. And uh, what I think that that tells you is something about the mindset of Tiberius, which is, you know, there is that there is um, there is a pantheon of gods and I'm not one of them. I am. (laughs) I'm I'm an administrator. I am the servant of the people trying to get this thing going. Now, the divine Augustus, of course, that's a different thing. and so he goes into history as having this reputation of being a sort of uh, a tyrannical, um, on the cusp of uh, evil in, in a way. And I'm, I'm, I'm in, in my research coming to the conclusion that's a very distorted picture. So to your point, um, it, it is, I think, in part down to uh, painting the Flavian family in a good light. But the other thing, it's also the way that principally Tacitus writes his books you, as I said, I mean, he, he sort of sets his people up to be, they have the promise of being good, but then there's the decay. There's, so there's the disappointment that goes with that. But the, but the underwriting is, but that's inevitable because the system is based on the rule of an autocrat. And there are so few people who can be good autocrats. In the case of Augustus, Tacitus basically shrugs his shoulders and says, well, kinda, we had to have him because he kind of put things right and he was okay. Tiberius was okay to start, but didn't end that way. And along comes uh, Caius. The trouble is with Tacitus, we actually miss all the books. So we don't actually know what he would have said. We we, we missed that chunk. And you talked to uh, Mr. Barrett about that, I'm sure, at great length. So what we're, what we're left to have is basically the book by Suetonius, which, of course, is full of gossip and rumor and little snippets of uh, racy stories and other bits that, uh, that, that people um, know and love, of course. Um, and there are other historians like Cassius Dio and uh, Arosius and Eusebius and all the other sort of people who have bits and pieces that you can you can put together like a layer cake. But um, by the time that uh, Caius comes on the scene, there's a lot of negative feelings certainly in Rome. And I think it's this is the other thing to think about is the historians by and large. So we're talking Suetonius, we're talking Tacitus as our principal sources are within Italy, are within Rome by and large. When you get to Cassius Dio, I mean, he's, he's basically a guy in, in, in Azimuna, uh, as I recall, um, and he's, he's 200 years later, so he's got a different, different perspective. But it begs the question, what did all the people outside of Italy think? 
and the, and I've gathered a lot of evidence in the case of, for example, Tiberius, where um, you just look at local coinages throughout Asia Minor and and through Greece and through the provinces out there, and they are very very eager to associate themselves with Tiberius and Drusus, by the way, his son. Um, there there are um, a lot of things that are happening that that celebrate mm. uh, the good health and the well being of Tiberius. So from their perspective because he's trying to enforce good administration. In the case of earthquakes, he goes out and brings cash and help. Um, he helps to rebuild things. He, 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 even in the center of Rome, which has a fire, right? he actually comes in and sort of says, anybody that's financially injured by this, I will help with compensation. And that's, that's in an age when there's no insurance. So he becomes like the, the insurance um, uh, lender, if you will, or the, the, the backstop for that. And, and, and it's, it's a very... Uh, bold and uh, paternalistic things. So in a sense, in that way, Tiberius is acting as a patron and his people are the clients. So in that way, he's he's a very good figure. And it just seems to be by the end of his reign and he's offing and Capri and people are imagining all sorts of things. When finally along comes this young 25-year-old who happens to be the direct descendant of Germanicus Caesar there are great hopes. I mean, this man brings vigor and, and youth and uh, the, 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 the happy memory of his father. And he arrives in Rome with great uh, celebrations and so on, and people expect great things. So let's work away some of it. And it does, at the early first seven months before he falls ill, and he does a genuine job, and he says, John, that he's abolished uh, the, the Tiberius treason trials, and he does it, and he's in the beginning. And it does seem to be, try to get the Senate on his side, and it does seem to be genuinely a, a decent emperor at least the first half of the first half year of this reign. That that does seem to be that that what we get from from what we're told. Um, and, and part of the challenge that we have, it, it's a bit like JFK. I mean, I, I I often refer to the death of Germanicus as the JFK moment, but I'm going to stretch this a little bit if you'll indulge me. Is that John F. Kennedy didn't didn't uh, exist as president of the United States long enough for bad things to happen. Obviously, in fact, he was assassinated. But what I mean is that he had an agenda and, and he wasn't president long enough for us to know whether he would have succeeded or not. It was for his successor, um, LBJ, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, whose library here is in Austin, by the way, in Texas, um, to actually do all of those things. So, in fact, the uh, the glow of this young, uh, attractive uh, leader um, was never tarnished enough. And it was the hard work of his successor that had to, to pick up the pieces. And there's, a, there's an interesting parallel, isn't there, that um, in the sense that Tiberius had reigned, what, for, let me look at it, 23 years. He was 77 when he died. And along comes a 25-year-old uh, Caligula, but he'll only reign for four years. So... <laughs> So we don't know how really bad he could have got. Um, but the thing is, it's also a very short length of time for us to know whether what that was that he did that was good was was enduring. Um, and again, I come to this issue that since most of the writers of the time are really this, this elite class focused on Rome, what was the feeling outside in the greater empire? And, and, and what's fascinating about Kelliger is that he did travel a little bit, he did go to the the German provinces, and he did revisit. Um, you know, the, the, he had a he had a certain vendetta that he wanted to settle, 
the story being that um, he was he was very acutely uh, aware of the nickname that they had given him. The Rhine legions had given him the name Caligula, and he didn't like that too much. He liked he was Caius. He was born Caius. And um, that there's a scene in I think it's Suetonius where uh, effectively he he sets out to decimate the legions as a punishment. All those years later. Um, for, for the humiliation, and then he goes on this slightly wacky invasion of Germany, um, which actually isn't invasion at all. It, it all seems to be slightly crazy. But again, you've got to remember who's actually telling the story. Um, and yet, what's fascinating is is that as you look at the archaeology and you look more deeply into the story, um, he replaces the governor of Germany at that point with somebody else. And it seems to be he's making really interesting preparations for an invasion of of Britain, which, of course, is still outside the Roman Empire at this point. And around 39 going into 40, um, you know, that there's a mobilization of the troops and they they, they sort of start doing that work with building forts and so forth. And uh, and then there's that curious situation when the troops march onto the beaches of Northern Gaul yeah. are told picket shells and all this sort of stuff. But what they leave, interestingly enough, what they leave is a tower, which is a pharos. And I just wonder, in fact, the point was actually he was there to build a pharos as part of the campaign. And maybe this was, hey, guys, pick up some shells and take them back to your, your wives and girlfriends. Actually, you wouldn't have had wives that were in the army. But, you know, to the people you, you hold dear. Um, and he gives them money and so on and so forth. So, again, a little bit like the way that the... Um, the rumours of insanity would would come later. I mean, people, people refer to his uh, horse as the as Incitatus as the consul, and as Mary Bid will tell uh, people who watch her documentaries, that may well be more in the lines of "You're also dim. I could put my hat my horse as a consul, and that would be better." And that then because oh, he's made his horse the consul, which maybe he didn't actually do. And in the same way, his his troops go to Gaul. They they build this. Pharos, and the intention is maybe to go back there and actually do the con- conquest, mm-hmm. but he doesn't live long enough for the conquest to actually take place. But the military... I want to interrupt you as well, yeah. sorry for doing that, but I want to mention the child story you mentioned, because we do speak, mm-hmm. and we're not going to talk too much about Caligula in, in this episode, but we are, because I want to mention that we did early on, it's almost three years now, I think, uh, three years wow. ago, we did an episode yeah. with Caligula, uh, with Anthony Barrett about Caligula, yeah. and we spoke about the Shell episode, but it could also signify that it was kind of a victory, that they did go there, and they did, I'm not exactly sure is how the quote they t- talked about, but it, it signified kind of um, sort of victory that he had, look at me, I went there, we would kind of, a trophy in a sense, to put it, for lack of better words, that he actually didn't went. That, that that's what the shells would signify. Yeah, I, and, and it, it's a great story, isn't it? I mean, you know, here, here's the most powerful man in the Western world, and what does he do? He goes and gets his army, which is the most professional army in the world as well, mm-hmm. and they pick up shells, and then they parade them in Rome as part of this triumph which he demands, having sort of said to people, oh, by the way, um, I'll cut your head off if you actually offer me a, tri- a triumph, but Caesar. So so they actually, re- they actually have... Um, uh, other people stand in for prisoners. You know, the whole thing is is a completely trifed, a, a pantomime of a thing. I'm just reading here, for example, Tacitus in Agricola 13.4, that Caius Caesar, Caligula, 
meditated in an invasion of Britain is perfectly clear, but his purposes rapidly formed were easily changed and his vast attempts on Germany had failed. So um, I, I think if you took that literally, that there was an intention to invade Britain. And you've got and you've got to remember that he's the grandson of Drusus the Elder. Uh, he is the son of Germanicus, and he doesn't have any military victories. And what what his family being Claudian, I mean he's Julio Claudian, but there's this kind of Claudian blood going through this, is is the tradition of having military victory to uh, improve your standing. And that's something when we talked about Claudius will, will also be the case. And and he goes to his death without really having any military victories at all. So um, all these other things are just basically optics to uh, make up the fact that they weren't real. So let's talk about this because it was, and, and again, I'm referring to the episode that we did on Anthony Barrett. And of course, there is a documentary by Tony Robinson, I think, the guy from uh, from Blackadder. That, yeah, yeah, hmm? Time Team. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, I don't remember yeah. his name. Oh, yeah. yeah, and he did an episode about Caligula as well, and I think in where, of course, as well, Anthony Barrett, again, is future. So, I mean, he spoke about that. He was genuinely loved by the people, though, not mm-hmm. much by the Senate. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and it's easy for us to forget that, isn't it? I mean, that uh, people who are away from the centre of politics can be immensely popular, whereas in the center of that political power, there's a different perception. There, there's the sense of overbearing power, of uh, sort of uh, no focus, um, of, of, of personal ambitions which go beyond those of the country. And, you know, I mean, you know, but I live in a country in the United States where, where some of those sorts of things are, you know, creaking and are on display. And But if you ask the ordinary people in the country, I mean, they have their heroes and they have different views of those people and um the people who write the newspapers with opinion columns today because they're close to when they can interview those people have a different perception of those people drinking coffee at starbucks or um uh, or other places around the united states so let's talk about some of the things why he was loved other people and then do have the story that he wanted to go Walk, not maybe not walk, but run across the water with his horse, so he not make this gigantic bridge with the boats where he yeah. ran his horse over, which caused extreme amount of money. This was just one of the many sort of well, so, so, so crazy that, stories that he did. Well, that comes straight out of uh, Suetonius Caius 19.3, and I can read you a bit of the extract because I've got it down here. Yeah. I know that many have supposed that Caius devised this kind of bridge in rivalry to Xerxes. And you remember Xerxes is the king of Persia, a part of, of, of ancient mm. uh, Greece time, um, who excited no little admiration by bridge, uh, bridging the much narrower Hellespont. Others, that is, to inspire fear in Germany and Britain, on which he had designs by the fame of some stupendous work. But when when I was a boy, I used to hear that my grandfather, and this is Tan- this is Suetonius talking about him as a young boy hearing these stories. So that tells you in the fifties and sixties AD, he's a little boy and he's hearing these these stories, which is why I think it's very interesting. But when I was a boy, I used to hear my grandfather say that the reason for the work, as revealed by the emperor's confidential courtiers, was that Thrasyllus, the astrologer, had declared to Tiberius. When he was worried about his successor and inclined towards his natural grandson, that Caius had no more chance of becoming emperor than of riding about over the Gulf of Baiae with horses. So he builds the bridge to fulfill the prophecy. 
is is the implication of that. So again, um, it's a great story. Did it happen? It sounds like it actually did. I mean, the fact is, Sweet Tony's grandfather is telling him the story, so it, it sounds like it was real. And um, I mean, you, you you must have seen how big the the, the Gulf of Baia is. It's a, you know, the Gulf of Naples. Pretty, pretty big that. Um, but of course, it depends on where they build a bridge, right? They might have just taken two narrowest points and built it. But the optics were great. And um, here's, here's Caius, the new king of Persia, if you will. But it, it seemed to be genuinely loved by the people what he did when he, because it was a public spectacle and people came to see it as the emperor crossing the water like this, because I don't think anyone done this before. And people seemed genuinely that they're loved by the people for doing this yeah and 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 in the city you're going to be having you know circus games and uh gladiatorial games in the forum and all that sort of stuff and 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 i mean this is a 25 26 27 year old right hmm. uh enjoying life i'm gonna guess i mean he's he's enjoying the adulation he's he's he's, he's having the party and so on and so forth and he has a lot of money and oh goodness does he spend money so, in fact, when he actually uh, inherits the role, Tiberius leaves him an enormous treasury. The, the thing was, Tiberius was 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 kind of mean, <laughs> right? He didn't. Spend he was kind of it. a bit of a Scrooge, weren't he? He was absolutely a Scrooge, but he would look at it this way: My job is fiscal responsibility. Um, I'm not going to be putting on pl- plays. I'm not putting on gladiatorial games. And oh, by the way. Those were things which actually contributed to his unpopularity, right? And um, nobody was then going to go do those things because that's not what people did by that time. I mean, the local provincial cities, you know, um, a, a local rich co- uh, businessman or notable could throw on games, and certainly they did that in places like Capua and elsewhere. But 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 Rome really lacks an amphitheater at this point, right? I, 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 there's. Uh, I think wooden structures that are temporary, they put it in the forum. There, there, there are several theatres for putting on plays, but they're not best for editorial combats. And along comes this Caligula who will put them on, right? So so the contrasts, people love this stuff. And uh, you, you can understand why that would that would really in, you know, make make him a popular figure. And, mm. um, of course, we have to remember that the Colosseum went there at this point. It was built in right. 69... AD, nice, but still, it's uh, they did have mini, like you said, they had wooden Colosseum, like the Colosseum we know today. Rome at this point is 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 basically a city of uh, tenement buildings. Most of them are not very well built. Uh, we were discussing before we came on air about Crassus and how he would actually make an awful lot of money out of uh, buildings either because they were burning or his guys would deliberately set them on fire so that he could you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> either offer you a firefighting service for cash or wait till the building was collapsed and he'd just buy it off the cheap. Um, but that was that was how things were. I mean, uh, the, the, the city to an outsider uh, would appear to be pretty shoddy, I think. Uh, buildings were, were, were high, but kind of almost medieval in their sort of, you know, wattle daub uh, timber construction. Some were built of brick, but not that many. So that you can you can imagine that when when Augustus makes the, the the boast, I find the city of brick and I left it one of marble. Well, that probably wasn't very hard to do because most of the buildings are made of brick, and he can build a few in marble, and people go, "Whoa, he's built a forum. He's actually built that. He's built at the the Roman Forum and all the rest of it." And 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 it hasn't changed much. That's what's interesting about. It. By the time Augustus dies, 
the, the most that Tiberius builds, as I recall, I think is he rebuilds the temple um, to the Dioscuri brothers, Castor and Pollux, which he actually names uh, for his brother. Um, you know, that's an act of devotion for him. Uh, and a couple of other buildings, um, in contrast to Augustus, who built a lot of buildings and renovated temples. Mm. Um, and along comes Caius with, with promises of new buildings. Um, but again, like I said earlier, he's only there for four years, so there's not a great deal to go by. But what we start seeing is some of the slightly crazy stuff that he does, does build. He wanted to build a sort of suspended corridor between the Palatine Hill where his villa was. And his villa basically was uh, adjacent, as I understand it, adjacent to where the uh, Villa Tiberiana is is now. And it would go, this this the structure would go across over to the Capitol Hill. And the, the idea being something, well, I can walk to go and talk to the gods because that's kind of, you know, over there. They're very, very close. Um, so these things would have been seen by people as being really odd uh, and uh, quite amazing engineering achievements to be able to build things that high up but but they certainly could do that uh, with their technology um but again four years he, he can't build much but in the meantime he can he can he can offer largesse uh great parties uh do these wacky let's build a bridge across the the, the bay um and uh, more to come or promises thereof and I, I want to talk about his marriage for a second because he was not the best he's one of the husband of the year you might say because mm -hmm. they, they do have a famous quote where he says he goes behind his wife. I don't remember his name, her name, sorry. But he does go behind her wife's, his wife. And he says, off with a hand, if the emperor so wishes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but but again, you know, so, so we have the, the, so the, the, uh, the sources that we have. We don't know uh, the truth of the behind. Closed doors conversations because ultimately, well, where who, who said what to whom and who wrote it down and yeah. was it accurately recorded and all the rest of it? Um, I, I recall was it wasn't his last wife, was it Sizonia? I think, um, I'm in fact, not what, what, sure, what to I, be honest. Um, my understanding is that he, he he was alleged to have had all sorts of sexual things of, of, of different kinds with, with his sisters. Um, whether true or not, I. I don't know, but I mean, again, it's, it's scandalous, the whole idea. I mean, it's an incestuous. There, there is some, I'd rather bring this up because there is some meme, I don't know if you've seen it, where there is, oh, Carlingo, oh no, I discovered my sister's only fans. Hey, not <laughs> bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and you know, I mean, he, he clearly uh, was, was very fond of his sisters, you know, and whether that turned into a sexual fondness, uh, I, again, I think in some respects we, we sort of have to lie completely on our sources. And they may have invented them because, again, what they're trying to do is, is it and, sounds and made up. It does to me kind of sounds like blaming propaganda. Well, but it's hard to say. And again, let's think about this for a second. The principal source that we have for the life of Caius Caligula is Suetonius, his book, The Life of Caius, and it starts with a little preceded story of Germanicus, his father, and the reason he does that is is really to say. Here is the role model, and here's my subject, and look how adrift of the role model my subject is. And he does the same thing with Claudius. We'll talk about that later. Um, and, and it's a technique that he uses where he contrasts good, bad, you know, wickedness and goodness and these sorts of things. Um, and, and, and Germanicus Caesar seemed to be loyal to his wife, Agrippina the Elder, um, had, I think, like 11 or nine children, at least by her. 
So, you know, even, even though they were a young couple, I mean, they, they were in the business of making families um, and they were very fond of each other. And you know, to that degree, you could argue that, that Kais had a, a good upbringing. I mean, there was the incident, of course, we talked a little bit about in, in Germany, where um, there's a mutiny in AD 14, uh, and Germanicus has to put that right. And it's the appeal to the troops that we're actually moving my family to a safer place because this army camp isn't safe enough. So say goodbye to little Caligula. He's going there with my wife. Goodbye. And of course, the soldiers at this point uh, are bereft because they say, you're taking our mascot away. No, no, no. And this supposedly breaks the, the, the mutiny. And that's another great story. Um, but like I said earlier, I mean, he, he seems to remember that, the fact that they were there to do that. And he, and he goes back several years later, 39, to, uh, to basically um, uh, make those people pay, the ones that were, were still alive at the time. Um, but, but the antics that he got into, I think in the end, he finds a woman that sort of understands him. Um, and I, I believe it's Sazonia. And she's a different kind. I don't know that there's any any accounts of her physical looks and those sorts of things. But in, in a world of uh, topsy-turvy life, she seems to be the stable one that he can go to. And, um, you know, that there are all sorts of parallels in, in life. And I, I, it just occurred to me, for example, Henry VIII and his six wives. I mean, one of the people that he genuinely loved was the last one, the last wife, um, who seemed to I've got to understand what he was as a man, what he needed, but it kind of for him it's too late, and in the same way it's too late for Caligula as well, with his last wife, and and they had a child uh, as well. So it's worth remembering that why that he was liked by the people and that he was genuinely seemed to be outside of the But what let's talk about some of the things that made him disliked by the elite and those closest to closest to. Caligula and the wife, wife, what it made him so. It's quite about a horror story of my yeah. horse to be a better senator yeah. than your, you, but let's talk about him and why he was disliked as a Well, I, I think in a nutshell, it comes down to there's still a resentment of the idea of this now hereditary autocracy. It's not a really a monarchy, it's certainly not elected. It's just sort of, well, Tiberius is replaced by this other guy, and along comes. Macro as his head of the Praetorian cohorts to enforce that. I mean, there's there's no discussion. It's just basically, hooray, you know, Caius is our new friend Capson, let's change the coins and all that sort of thing. Um, and as you pointed out, there seems to be a, a good interface and open dialogue between the principal institutions of government, which are in this case mostly the Senate. Um, but over time, that begins to degrade. And I would imagine that people are looking at the state of finances. Uh, and some of this uh, erratic behavior and thinking this is not what we look for in a Roman head of state. So so these must have been increasingly of concern. And these failed expeditions to Germany and then to Britain, uh, and then this sort of rather bizarre triumph that we talked about a few moments ago, all really would, would get thinking people to question, really, is this, is this right? Um, and, and then there are these gratuitous examples of cruelty um, both of members of his own family, but just people around him, you know. Uh, and, and does this mean that that, that he's mad? I, 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 you know, I was looking at some of the the materials. What what they described as madness doesn't necessarily mean mad in the sense that we now call it, like as a, a mental condition. It was just the the astonishing variety of his, his erratic behaviours 
which seems to then go back to the point at which he was sick uh, at some point, and he, he apparently emerges believing that he's a god, um, Jove, um, and, and, and bizarrely is the way that the Senate seems to go along with it. Um, if, if you remember from I Claudius, I mean, with, with uh, John Hurt playing uh, Caligula marvelously, um, they they just kind of go along with it. Um, on the other hand, there's this this wonderful scene where one of the senators said, basically, uh, we're so glad that you've recovered, Caesar. And he's heard this rumor that the Caligula's heard this rumor that the senator had promised to offer his life if if Caligula would be spared and would, would come, you know, would recover. And basically says, so why are you still here? <laughs> you know, take a dagger on me. Um, you know, and, and, and these sorts of these, are, and I don't know whether that's actually in Suetonius, but it's the sort of thing you can imagine that will be circulated. So that sort of thing would contribute to a general sense of ill ease, dis ease, um, and a need for changes. But uh, it really comes to a head with Cassius Chirea, finally, uh, to try and lead a plot to oust him, and 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 that is the thing that finally does him in. It's actually it's a, it's a military coup, effectively. Before we go into that, I want to talk about his uncle as well, Claudius, whom we are going to talk more about. How does he come? Because he does enter Caligula's life as well. I do believe he is by his side when he fell ill, and he does have a decent role in Senate, I guess, but he does, he do seem to have a role in Caligula's life as well. I think so. Um, so, so just to give everybody the family tree. So, so Claudius is the son of Drusus the Elder and, uh, and Antonia. Um, he's the brother of Germanicus. So when Germanicus dies, you know, he becomes important because he's the survivor of the immediate uh, family. Um, Claudius is, is generally maligned in the sources because he's lame. He has a stammer. Um, people ascribe to him mental deficiency. Um, I, I think people were going to be surprised actually how how really quite a bright man he was. But the point is they keep him out of view mostly. And that's a deliberate thing, partly because when he's around at the time of Augustus, Augustus has this kind of uh, fear of dwarfs and misshapen people and, and things of that nature. He's He's kind of really almost freaked out by that and, and and he's got one in Claudius who's a bit too close to home um but as all these other things are happening around him uh, over the decades Claudius seems to f- find a place to uh, survive and he buries his time in writing histories uh and he famously writes a book of Etruscan history and Carthaginian history um apparently he had uh, had learned Etruscan and uh, which is sad and lost and I still weep Yes, um, and uh, by all accounts, he was writing a book about his own family. I, I think pr- principally to memorialize his father, uh, Drusus the Elder, of, of whom he was uh, very, very, very respectful and fond of, and would go on to commemorate later. We'll talk about that as our conversation unfolds. But you, you have the impression of this man who his own family doesn't like, who is embarrassed by, and nevertheless is a family man um, who spends much of his time in the palace. So he's around a lot. And and Caligula is a young person um, and no doubt would have spent time playing games or whatever with his sisters, but there's the figure of Uncle Claudius in the background. 
Actually, we called him Claudius, by the way, because he probably would have been called Uncle Tiberius because his name was Tiberius Claudius Nero. Mm. Um, and they probably called him by his first name, not because they were all basically either Julie or Cloudy. So so they wouldn't actually sort of talk about Uncle Julius because that was something different. But um, you see how I'm going with it. Mm. So, of course, we have to talk about, I mean, we have to move on, sadly. I was to speak more about Charlie Glove, but if you do want to learn more, more about him, you are more than welcome to check out. It's episode 30, so it's quite early on in the podcast, or just scroll down to our YouTube. And, uh, it, but I did interview Anthony Barrett many years ago, a few years ago, not many, but still, about Caligula. So you, if you want to learn more about him, you should definitely check out that episode. So let's uh, go to, to the death of Caligula and what do he as a plot to murder him? I, I was going to say, by the way, as a tribute to you, that the fact that you can actually talk to uh, him and other eminent scholars, I mean, it's a testament that, you know, you know your history uh, and they respect you as an interviewer, so well done. Um, I so appreciate death, that. Yeah, so, well, you know, great. Uh, so th- th- there seems to be a, a conspiracy that breaks out. Uh, and as I recall, the story uh, as related is that there's one officer, particularly Cassius Kyria, who uh, of conservative politics and mind sees what's going on and doesn't like it at all. And uh, so, so Caligula would give the watchword uh, every day to his officers so that, you know, that that would be what they'd used to recognize friend from foe. And he'd give them names, you know, for example, like kiss me quick sort of thing. And, 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 and it was all designed in jest, it seems, but Kester's career never got the joke or actually got very tired of them. So he hatches a plot and, and effectively, um, that the, the plot involves creating, um, a diversion so that when, uh, Caligula is attending games or theatre performance. Uh, he's invited to come away and go down a particular uh, corridor where he will be assassinated. And fascinatingly, archaeologists believe they have found that corridor. It's a it's a brick corridor um, around the Palatine Hill, and and, and he was basically butchered. It, it very unpleasant. Um, it was it was basically a, a few armed troops uh, stabbing him and, and 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 causing quite a degree of butchery, but the deed is done and Cassius' career then basically is ba- is effectively looking to the Senate at that point to uh, to restore the older style Republican the Republican and again Republicans. we come back to this where they again they want to establish a Republican. This is seems to be a common occurrence. That's the part yes. about that the Tiberius they wanted to make well, the rest of the John. What is dead? They don't understand that what is dead is dead. They don't can't bring it. It's pretty well, much. Well, we talked about it, didn't we, the last time when we were talking about Marcus Junius Brutus and Cassius Longinus too. And, and what I said there was okay. They they hatched a conspiracy, and they were successful in the first objective, which was to take down the tyrant or the person they thought was the tyrant. They didn't have a plan for the after the assassination. And in this particular case, they lose control of what happens. So um, Caligula uh, has a German bodyguard like uh, like, like uh, Augustus had had and, 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 and uh, Tiberius, I believe, too. Uh, the uh, Custodes Corporis Germania, I believe. Uh, and I think these were either uh, people who are Batavians or, or uh, from, from the Ubi. Point is, anyway, they were they were they were to everybody else a terrifying crew. 
because they were this first rank of, of, of bodyguards. And they discover what's happened to the man. Oh, by the way, who pays their pay? You know, who pays them their, their money? And all hell breaks loose. So they're running around trying to find who's responsible for the assassination of their man. And in the meantime, Kess's career is presumably trying to rally people to calm the whole situation. And the story goes that in all this panic is that uh, Claudius, who at this point, by the way, is now, let me look at my fit, he's now 51. So you've got a 51-year-old who apparently secretes himself away in one of the rooms behind a curtain in, in mm. one of the rooms and is discovered by the Praetorian cohorts. And in this particular case, then, they decide that he is going to be their princeps. And it's important because the whole point of the Praetorian cohorts is to guard the body of the of the princeps, the emperor. So if they have a republic, there will be no one to, 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 to actually defend, yeah. and therefore they'll be basically out of a job. So you end up with this rather slightly perverse situation that they're in it for the money, you could say. And uh, they, they give the Senate basically an ultimatum. So, so they take Claudius to their Praetorian camp, which, interesting enough, Sejanus had arranged to build in Rome under the uh, under the reign of Tiberius, because at that point they were billeted across uh, not only the city of Rome, but across Italy. And in fact, he brought them together and they cohabited the place with the Vigiles, uh, who were the uh, the fire service and, and, and uh, the, the one that basically offered a sort of a night watch. And the ultimatum is basically, well, we've got the man and you can accept him. You know, we've got the pointy things to enforce our particular position. So the Senate has a discussion and effectively kowtows to the Praetorian cohorts. And before they know it, they've got a they've got Princess number three. Mm. Um, actually, number, number four, because it was, it was Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and now it's Claudius. It's fourth. Um, so going back to Cassius Chiria, this was not the plan at all. So they replaced one autocrat they didn't like with another autocrat that they didn't like much more. But the Senate, I think, because they got to know Claudius as being foolish, they thought maybe they can they can get their way with him. Um, and weren't they in for a surprise? Hmm. I want to talk about Claudius a little bit, because, of course, we don't want to talk about the relation of Britain in a bit. But hmm. I feel like it's really underrated that he actually was quite a good emperor. He didn't on the red for thirty years-ish. But still, he did. He, he should be up there with one of the good emperors, I think, because he was genuinely a good emperor. And I feel like he's reliable because he wasn't very popular and he wasn't kind of the guy you think would end up. He was the underdog in, in a sense, I feel like, and still ended up on the top. So to me, at least, he is kind of a reliable person. Well, so so a lot of what you say is true. At least that's my reading of it too. But but on the positive side, that's, so he's fifty one, right? So we've gone from basically being the seventy year old uh, Tiberius to a twenty five year old Caligula now to someone halfway between those, right? Mm. So you know someone who's got a bit of vigor, a bit of life, but cru- crucially is the brother of Germanicus, is the son of Drusus the Elder. So he's got two big behind him um he is somebody that people know to be sort of this historian uh slightly fudgy that he presumably but he's not really actually done anything wrong in his life that anybody would bring and point out he's wicked because of this i think he was a bit of an unknown quantity so when he takes over he has this very uneasy 
thing to have to do. He's got the Praetorian cohorts, basically, who put him there. One of the first things he does, he pays them a donative. And that becomes something he does every year, interesting enough. It's like he has to guarantee he's going to stay there. And they say, you know, it's it's the anniversary. Our hands are out for the cash. Um, but he's also aware, because he's been able to observe what's going on in Rome all of these years, the sort of corruption that goes on in the corn trade um, and, and some of the sort of things where the, the, the common people are, are not best served by things like infrastructure. So he embarks on things like projects to uh, rebuild Ostia, to, uh, I, I think, to, to, to really sort of build infrastructure like uh, aqueducts and to provide stuff that's going to really work for the betterment of society. So it, that, that, that you get the impression from this that he's read his history books. He's seen what was what was working in the due, uh, in the in the partnership between Augustus and Agrippa, and a lot of what they had done was public infrastructure and so on, and they they were very successful in in, in doing that. It was very popular, um, and at the same time, there's the administrative stuff that he's he's dealing with. He, he's a guy, and I wrote an article very recently for Ancient History, uh, Ancient Warfare magazine, where I was trying to explain there that. He embarked on a series of what we call now reforms, kind of really inf- refinements. He, he's had enough time to look at things and take advice from people. So he was able to look again at things like terms, conditions of service, things that didn't work very well, that maybe needed some tweaking. Um, and there were some issues that, for example, Roman troops were not allowed to marry. Well, that's okay, but the trouble is if they actually have a Roman citizen's son, that son wouldn't be recognized, which meant if anything had happened to the soldier, their inheritance wouldn't pass to their son, which was really quite a, a, um, you know, a, a, a bad oversight. So he changed the rule. So he enabled those people to be able to do that. And that was a popular thing. Um, for people in um, the auxiliary troops, which were non-Roman professional troops, he instituted and formalized the process of issuing the, what we now call diplomas, uh, which meant that people had literally proof in bronze of, of their rights as Roman citizens. And, and that was something that extended also to the Roman fleets. Um, he embarked on some interesting campaigns uh, to sort out some difficulties in places like Mauritania. We'll talk about Britain in a second. Uh, some of these were wars of necessity. There, there were troubles that he tried to fix. And again, he knew that these were the things that you'd have to do as, as, as an emperor, as a princeps. There was the possibility of a war opening up with Parthia, but he knew from his history that was not a smart thing to do, so they backed off on that. Um, so, so when you look at this totality of him um, in, in the way he does things, he, he's, a, he's, I think he's a, a reliable man at the right moment, because up to that point, the situation seemed to be chaotic. The state had run out of money. Caligula had spent it all. So between between Tiberius and, and and the arrival of Claudius, he has to fix the deficit. So he's got to he's got to tinker with the tax system to to start to bring in money into the coffers. And this is also, by the way, the reason why you have to have a conquest because you need to go bring the gold and the jewels from those places and be able to sell them and realize them to pay for all the other things that he wants to do. And um, it, it's quite a remarkable reign in that in that respect. Mm. So I want to before we go into the battle, the, the conquest of Britain, I want to talk about his wife because she is quite, you might say, a piece of work, and that is of course Agrippina the Younger, who also has some ambition for her son, has certain narrow 
well, can we talk about Messalina first? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so before her, there was Messalina. And, and actually before her, there was another lady called Ugolania, who was, a, was, was, was an arranged marriage. And, and apparently it was uh, very awkward. And, and if you remember from I, Claudius, uh, that the actress who played that role was much taller than, than Claudius himself, played by Derek Jacobi. And of course, it's the, it's the scene where they, they mock him because they keep saying, she kept on growing and growing, you know, and of course, uh, it's all very embarrassing. But um, Messalina is, is a person who arrives in his life um, that he seems to form a really, really deep love for. Uh, what he doesn't realize is that she's playing him. Um, and uh, she is, shall we put it this way, uh, she has a high libido, a libido um, and that there are stories where basically she attracts another lover and uh, in, in, in one contest, she competes with a prostitute for who can have the most lovers in the night and apparently she wins. This is all happening in the forum. And what is also happening at the same time, part of the government system that Augustus has set up, but redeveloped and, and was, was fine-tuned under, under Claudius, was the role of freedman. So a freedman is a former slave. Um, and in the particular case of Claudius, he has two, Pallas and Narcissus. And basically, one is the one that looks after his um, administration from the point of view of um, records and that sort of thing. And the other one basically is rather more to do with, with, with policy decisions. And they're fully aware what Messalina is doing. And um, it, it, it's really down to those guys to, to save Claudius from himself. And in discovering what she's up to, they, they try very hard to work out how they're going to get this this woman out of the system and finally they they arranged for her to be arrested by having him sign basically her arrest warrant and her execution and he doesn't realize this because he's blind drunk when he does this and finally when he wakes up calls for his wife and he's told sir uh, she was executed last night on your orders and you know um so he's quite bereft by that but so so there's a suggestion somehow that he becomes quite cynical you could argue that with the loss of someone that he loved, who betrayed him, uh, that um, did he really care anymore? And interesting enough, of course, uh, Agrippina is his niece. So you have this really interesting situation where they're related by blood, and she has a young son, uh, Domitius Hannibarbus, by by her husband, and he agrees to marry her, which then brings the son into play as a natural successor. And yeah, I want to stop you for a second uh, again. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, because I want to ask, as you know, in medieval Europe and up to early modern times, the purity in, you mentioned that they were re related on this, I want to know, because, you know, especially in the Habsburg lines and the other royal lineages, purity of the blood and that the intermarriages were kind of the hot thing and it's spoke about this with the Ptolemies as well, intermarriage was kind of a thing. Was in the in the Roman world was purity as well a thing that kind of were, you know, that it's a royal family. Then purity is why was that not important? I I don't know so much in, in the case of the Julia Claudia that the family of Augustus in its broadest sense. Um, I, I'm not sure that that Romans necessarily understood the genetic risks of intermarrying people close to you, uh, in, in the way that it caused problems for uh, the Egyptian families, for example, 
um, um, Akhenaten famously, I, I think, married uh, his sister or something, uh, and that 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 caused all sorts of problems. But um, I, I think in this particular instance, and it's not particularly clear why he did it, because he already had his own son uh, who was nicknamed Britannicus after the conquest of Britain. He actually so his son was called the Briton, if you will, or the Victor of Britain. Um, but the but the issue there is that we can we can only surmise from from looking at the text, and now we can go back to uh, Tacitus as well as Suetonius and Cassius Dio, is that she was a very strong woman who uh, had ideas about how the state should be run, and the fact that she was a woman and she wasn't supposed to be involved in politics didn't seem to be a problem for her. Uh, you've got to remember where she came from, and she's a descendant, of course, of Marcus Agrippa through that line. Um, you have to remember what her mother was like, right? So she was a strong woman. Uh, she'd actually been exiled for part of her life, and she came back from that and was rehabilitated. So I see in, in Agrippina this very resourceful, strong woman who had ambitions for herself, but also through her son. And this would this effect if she was setting her own dynasty. And in Claudius found someone who happened to be the princess, uh, who would go along with it. And this is what he does. He marries her. And uh, he basically nominates her son to be the next in line of succession. And his, his name is changed from Domitius Hennebarbus to Tiberius Claudius, Nero, Drusus Germanicus, and all the rest of it, uh, known as Nero, um, which is interesting because Nero is, is a classically Claudian name. So Nero was the name of his father, Nero Claudius Drusus, and it went all the way through the Claudian line. It was a Sabine word, uh, Sabines being a tribe in Italy going several centuries back when when the Romans were, were, were competing for land and they were the Latins at that time, uh, which means basically strong. And it, 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 it's a name that, that carries with it uh, very positive associations. So along comes this young man with this new name, Nero, uh, who's basically rebranded in the in the Julio Claudian family uh, with a mother who who's got big ambitions um, and 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 uh, I'm not aware that there were any children between Claudius and his new wife. She probably didn't want any anyway because she already had the one that she had ambitions for. So we mentioned we teased a little bit about conquest and same Batman correcting the conquest of Britain and as we talked about before, many have tried. Caesar and the conquest and failed, and of course Caligula tried and failed. So, what made the conquest of Britain so successful for Claudius, and why? Why did it first now succeed in the conquest of Britain? And it's so, and it's going to why he chose. We spoke about treasury. Was that part of why he chose to try again, a at least a third time, to conquer the British Isles? I, I preface it by saying this. So you remember when I talked about Caligula having no military experience mm. um, and dressed up his activities in Germany, but on the shores of Gaul as military conquests? Well, the same problem affected Claudius, right? Now, you've got to remember what family he came from. He came from a family of successful warrior leaders, going all the way back to uh, Claudius Marcellus, who famously... Um, uh, fought with a Gallic chieftain and seized his armor once he'd uh, killed him and achieved what was called the spolia opima, which was this uh, basically blood-drenched 
wore uh, a panoply and then you would actually take it to the temple of Jupiter Feretrius. And there were only three people ever did that. One was actually Romulus, so he was the second. So this is in the family tree, uh, the greater family tree of Claudius. So his father is the famous conqueror of Germany. That's how he got his cognomen Germanicus, which is how his son got his first name. So when um, Drusus the Elder, as, 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 or, or Drusus Maior, if you will, brother of Tiberius, um, in his young career, he achieved a number of things. He, first of all, was very successful in the Alps. He fought an Alpine war in 15 BC, where he famously defeated the Raiti, who were a, a confederation of Iron Age Celtic tribes that were spread across the central Alps and the southern slopes of the Alps on the northern side in what's called the Four Alpenland. And they were a problem for the Romans. The, the Romans at that time didn't actually occupy or control most of northern Italy. So what Drusus was able to do was kind of bring that under Roman control. And he did that in a campaign with his brother Tiberius. And then later, he was involved in a four-year campaign across the Rhine. So he was very successful in pushing Roman uh, control, first along to the Emps and the Lippa, and ultimately ending at the Elba. I think we may have talked about the last time. So Claudius, as the son of Drusus the Elder, can look to this man and say, I'm his son. What's very interesting, within a couple of years of him becoming emperor, and we've got to remember that he, he's on the throne from 41 AD, right? Within about one year, two years, is thinking about what is his going, what is he going to do to actually achieve this military victory? And he issues coins. And the coins have the head on the one side of Drusus, Nero Claudius Drusus. On the other hand, they have emblems of war in Germany. And with his name on, and the association is, my name is Emperor Claudius, and my dad is the conqueror of Germany. Aren't I, you know, a, a lucky guy? And what he then tries to do is assume the mantle of his father. Now, Caligula had tried in Germany and failed. His brother Germanicus had tried in Germany and arguably had failed. And Tiberius at that point told him, don't go there anymore. So the only place left was Britain. And you could argue, as we were talking earlier, that in fact Caligula had designs on conquering Britain and started building the military infrastructure along the Rhine River. So the 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 plans for conquest, and, and again, supposition on, on my part, is that you have to imagine that there were invasion plans which the individual legionary commanders or the pro-praetorian legate responsible for Gallia Belgica, for example, would have. He probably hope would have had a master plan as to how they're going to do this, which units, supply chains, you know, boats being built and all the rest of it. Um, so arguably, Claudius already had a ready-made plan. All he had to do was press the green button, go, invade. So what um, it seems to be is that the conquest of Britain fulfilled a number of very useful things for him. It established him in the long line of the Claudii, most notably his own dad and his brother. And in the other respect, is if he was actually successful, it showed that he was a military guy, which was really important from the point of view that put him squarely in the tradition established by, first of all, um, Augustus, but also Tiberius, because Tiberius is a military guy as well. And it, and it broke the, the oddity of Caligula in the meantime, who was, was more of a showman. So what happens in AD 43, um, there, there are two commanders, most famous we know all as Plautius. But there was Saturninus also, who was mentioned, I think, in Erosus. It was a it was a campaign of four legions under two commanders who set off from the coast of Gaul. They cross the English Channel. They land at 
maybe won two points. One is the South Coast, uh, maybe one is in the area of Kent. And we seem to think it's at Richborough because that becomes the, the entry point to what will become the, pro the province of Britain. It's a Rutupiae. And then along the coast, it seems to be that it was a landing at or, or very close to Fishbourne um, in, in West Sussex. There was a palace built in in uh, later ages, but before the palace, there seems to have been some early Roman installation or Roman inspired installation, which appears to be something like a granary. And there's some speculation here is that the Romans weren't working in isolation. The British at the time, the Iron Age uh, Britons, Celts, if you will, um, were tribal in nature and were warring with each other. So the Celtibiloni, for example, um, of the middle of the, of the country and the Regni of, of the south, for example, like Cantii out in Kent um, and, and the big tribe, the Trinuantes, who were out in what we now consider to be uh, the Colchester area, were vying for control of the country. And, and every so often, one of the people would come over into the Roman Empire and say, I'd like to form an alliance with you. I will support you. Or would you support me? And there's an inference maybe that, in fact, before the Romans invaded, they had already got some diplomatic leverage with tribes, uh, one of which would have been the Regni, who are this tribe that exists in the south of the country between West Sussex, Sussex principally and the Isle of Wight. And that becomes one of the landing spots. It, it's really intriguing. It, it, if it's possible that the, uh, the infrastructure in Chichester predates 43 AD, does that mean there was a Roman detachment perhaps active already or what was going on there exactly? The archaeology can't, can't tell us much more than the fact that these, these structures are there and there's militaria that, that we can we can pick from there. But the, the, but the local king, Togidubnus, is instrumental in helping and assisting the, one of the landing army groups to be able to get a foothold and be able to start moving south and southwest. Interesting enough, Legio II Augusta under Vespasian is the man active. And then the other part of the, of the campaign goes up through the Thames, the Medway, and that way, and then over the period, all the way through to 54, secures these, either defeating the tribes as they find them, or basically saying, we're your friends, we've arrived, and, and hold this for us as we move north, west, and, uh, and, and southwest. So uh, Claudius is able to achieve quick gains, famously arriving in what was Camelodunum, which was the the, the um, Trinovantes' uh, head city, and with a short order that they they basically set up the trappings so he can arrive with uh, elephants. So he actually has this triumphal parade through this Iron Age British uh, oppidum, as it would have been, and with with elephants. Of course, Britons wouldn't have seen elephants, so you can only imagine what consternation that would have created. But but they were very very clearly. Uh, anticipating victory. I mean, they brought all their trappings with them going to celebrate this day, all of which is great because the, when he comes back to um, to Rome and he actually makes a point of going the route which would have actually been the route that his father had established. So he actually comes back through this, this, this road, which is uh, the Via Claudia Augusta, which goes basically all the way through the north side through the four Alpenland down through the, uh, the, 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 the Alps there, arri arriving finally at Ponstrusi, which is Bolzano, at the Tredentum, Trento, and then finally all the way down. So, so he's making that very clear historical and diplomatic and um, military connection with his dad. And guess what he does after that? They mint a whole new set of coins 
And remember the ones before had his, his father's head with the albums of De Germanis from Germany. Now they say they're Britannis. So he's able to sort of say, my dad did Germany, I did Britain. Uh, and they both have triumphal arches with, with, with the pictures of um, captive Britons or Germans, as the case may be. So by AD 43 going into AD 44, he's now established that he's no fool. He's a successful, victorious commander-in-chief. He's imperator. He's the commander. And I think I think it was quite brilliant how he did it. He, he was very good to have such um, good deputies that he could entrust the whole campaign to. And once they had actually secured their foothold in Britain, they just kept moving uh, ever westwards, ever northwards. So, of course, the, the, there is some years in between that we had to move on, I'm afraid. So let's talk about the death of Clovis, because I believe the rumour goes that he was poisoned by Agrippina the Younger, who, of course, had motives in putting her son, Nero, on the throne. Or is this just a rumour? Is there... Was it possible, possible for a heart attack or a natural death? It was, as we mentioned, it was quite old. It must have been around 60 at this point. It was 51 when he came in and he reigned. He'd been on the train for 10 years, so he must have survived. So medical disease could have been a cause, natural cause as well. But was it, as we think the rumor goes, that he was poisoned by his wife, Agrippina, to put her son, as so the sources say, I think, that she would have Nero on the throne. Well, let's be careful with our words here. Is 63 old? Um, I'll, I'll I mean, for the time, this. for the time. <laughs> well, but remember... <laughs> so I'm corrected. You are, yeah, so, so Augustus was 75 and Tiberius was 77. That's mm. my point. No, I, I think that it's interesting, is it? Because we're talking life expectancy with actually lived ages. And uh, once once Romans had got beyond that, that dangerous piece of the first nine or, or ten years... Some could live quite long ages, so I, I just point that out. But um, to your point, uh, so so yes, the story of mushrooms. Um, Claudius is is portrayed in the sources. He loves wine, he he loves food, and he has a particular taste for mushrooms. So the question is, were they poisoned, or did he by accident eat poisonous mushrooms? Because it's quite possible that you know somebody picked the wrong ones and he didn't know, and he, he actually got poisoned naturally rather than by some sinister conspiracy it, we can't really know this is the part but but it suits the story that we're told through tacitus uh, and suetonius and cassius dio as part of this idea of this powerful woman who has designs for her son that she would try and bump him off i mean you know arguably he could have just carried on i mean he was what i said he was 63 he might have lived on two more years and he died on Nero already was marked out to be a successor. So, you know, was she in a hurry? Maybe. Um, did he die of natural causes? I can't say, but the story of the poisoning is certainly one that uh, is in the sources. And, and is, to is go it with that, other sources as well, or is it just one source that's reported that it was poisoned? Uh, I, I don't recall. I'll be very honest, I don't recall. But I wanted to make this point, that there is a trope, right? And remember Livia Drusilla, right? Augustus's wife. Okay, she was also accused or maligned or I implicated in poisonings of members, either of her family or the people who might have got in the way of her family. Um, and 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 you know, even Cleopatra, for example, there's there's poison involved in in her death. Um, so this idea that, that 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 women in powerful positions will resort 
not to a dagger. I'm holding a paper opener here, a letter opener, but, but you know, hold it. They wouldn't re rely on a weapon. No, they'd be much more, you know, uh, subtle and, 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 and uh, clever in the way that they might administer that. So it, it, it fits also a trope. Right, that, that that a woman with with ambition and maybe evil intent will resort to poison because hey, they all do that, right? Um, and I can't say. I, I think the other thing to think here really is that, that that Claudius was known to be sick, and he did have stomach problems. Um, was that like a stomach ulcer, or was that food poisoning? I don't know. I mean, you've got to remember in a lot of the uh, Roman homes that uh, cleanliness that we would expect. Like they weren't using bleach to, to clean countertops, and the toilet was often right next to the cooker. So human excrement is very close to food. So I think uh, food poisoning and these sorts of things were probably quite common. Um, I don't know that people are necessarily in the habit of washing their hands. I mean, they, they go to the baths every day, we're told. Um, and even even those may not have been particularly clean because, of course, people are taking everything they got with them, and that's all ending up in the water too. So I think there's a risk factor here that just daily life could be dangerous, and it just so happens that he was married to Agrippina and mushrooms, and then he dies, and then people join these things up and say, "Ah, he was poisoned." But I do think I want to go back to saying what I said before that I think he was genuinely a good emperor, and that. He should, there should be six emperors and Claudius should be among them. Of course, there are probably more than just five good emperors, but he should be among one of those good emperors that we can well, see that. And, and the Romans recognized it to this degree. He was deified after he died, right? So I think that says a lot. I mean, if you look at the 12 Caesars under Suetonius, not all of them were deified. In fact, that majority were not. Um, so that tells you a great deal, I think. And, and it's just very interesting that in this place called Cabanodunum, which actually was Colonia Victricanensis, um, that, that in fact there was a temple to him in Britain. And uh, it, it's, it's just, I think, really interesting that it was, a, it was a big temple. It wasn't a small one, it was a big one. In fact, the Colchester Museum in Colchester is, is built within the brick superstructure that was the podium. And you can still go in there and actually see the supporting arches that held this great big temple within this huge big precinct. I mean, it was a destination to go to. So, so when a traveler left Gaul, traversed the English Channel, the ocean, as it would have been then, and they arrive at Rutupiae, uh, uh, Reculva, they would have gone through a massive arch. It was a quadrifons. It was a four-arched uh, victory arch. And then they were taken the, Rome, uh, the, the, the road, and they could have branched off if they wanted to do culture to go and see that. Uh, on their way to Londinium. And, and, and I think that speaks volumes that uh, he was regarded that highly that he was deified. Um, so, so Romans actually did regard him, I think, on balance as a good man. Uh, he, he instituted, as I said, there were, there were crucial refinements that he did to the army, which enabled it to exist for at least another 150 years, uh, certainly all the way through to Hadrian without much change at all. And uh, that was essential because it was the Roman army that was the power behind the princeps. And um, above and beyond that, I mean, he, he fixed certain things within the Roman system, which were creaking and a little bit inefficient. Uh, the, the port of Ostia was a, was a major thing, which actually long existed after him all the way until Trajan. So that was a major thing. Um, so I think a lot of people would have looked at that and sort of say, yeah, good guy. Hmm.
So, of course, let's talk about Nero's accession to the throne, which has been talked about a few times now. He would become the heir to the empire. And what I, of course, want to talk about as well, his relation with Agrippina, because his mother-son relationship, as we will see, was... It was it was not the best. Let's be fair. Are, are we even allowed to? Is it is it um, is it suitable for publication? <laughs> <laughs> um, we can try. I mean, if we are yeah, castle, we'll, we'll yeah. see. <laughs> so, so so here's the, here's the situation as as we understand it. So um, Claudius is dead. Um, a young twenty five year old now effectively is is the, is the heir to succeed. But there is his brother, uh, who's Britannicus. And the story is that uh, Britannicus chokes on, I think it's a, a is it a, a, a date stone or a, or um, something like that, and in fact uh, is eliminated during a during a banquet or a, a, just a standard Roman dinner, leaving Nero basically to be princeps without rival. And um, the personality of Nero. Ironically, like Caligula, was he had no military experience. Ironically, his father, uh, Domitius Hernabarbus, was a military guy. In fact, he'd actually been involved up in the conquest of, of, of Germany at one point, taking taking the legions all the way to the Alba River. But but his son didn't. That didn't have any of those sorts of things. In fact, his interests were in what we describe as the arts and the humanities. And um, the problem that he faced was that Romans looked at that very, uh, with a frown on their face, because a Roman leader was not supposed to sing songs and act on the stage. And if you did, actors were really quite low on the social order. Um, I mean, mean, I'm sorry for for interrupting you, but we mentioned this before on the podcast, in ancient times, especially medieval times as well, it's really quite a recent phenomenon that actors are quite famous and looked up to as they are today, back in those days, it was the low, like you said, it was the lowest class, and you, you did not want to be associated with those guys. It was on the level of prostitutions, basically. Yes, I think the profession of acting, i.e., not being who you are, the authentic you, and actually wearing a mask. Don't mm. forget that actors in those days were going to wear platform shoes, exotic costumes, and these enormous masks, which 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 were stereotyped just the, the tragedy. That the, the 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 sad man, the angry man, the funny man, the, the the slave, the woman, and in fact, if you look at some of the mosaics that come from Pompeii uh, and elsewhere in, in in the Roman Empire, they they show these. Um, this all appealed to to, to 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 Nero. He was he enjoyed being a performer, and when you sort of see his 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 principle within the terms of that, it makes more sense. But it was increasingly outrageous to people in the Roman elite. Um, and um, I, I suppose it could be. I mean, his mother probably encouraged it because that enabled her to kind of do what she wanted to do. And of course, she was now working. Uh, I, I think she was actually a lover of Narcissus, who was one of um, Claudius's freedmen. So she was able to sort of uh, pull levers and things like that behind the scenes. Um, and I know, oh, by the way, I just wanted to point out that when we were talking about Claudius earlier, um, in Suetonius, there's very clear statements there that saying a lot of these great ideas about reforming things and buildings weren't Claudius's ideas, they were his two freedmen's and his wives. And the wives could be Messalina, but I'm thinking also Agrippina. Um, mm-hmm. So we have to sort of bear that in mind. And that was also outrageous to Romans because that what do you mean we've got freedmen? We've got women running the show? What is this about? So so the fact that Nero comes out of this 
and wants to be an actor, a singer, and a star um, is is a bit of a shock, you know, um, mm. because, because again, they, they have to reset the Roman Principate. I mean, they're now looking at number five mm. and they're wondering what's this going to be like? And what they get is this guy who, who's you know, young, kind of charming, apparently got some talent, um, starts off pretty well, actually engages the Senate with things. He sort of resets with them because Claudius became more and more uh, controlling in a way. He'd actually brought more of the decision-making into his office. And, and Nero kind of gives it back to the, to the Senate to be able to work. So initially, there's, there's, there's a good response to this. And it may well be that, um, you know, working in tandem with his mother, they, they were able to get some good things moving along there. And at that time, you know, Britain, the conquest is still going on like that. There are no major issues within the Roman Empire within the first five or so years. So things look good in, in that time, AD 51. I want to bring you up as well. And again, I'm referring to this, as I've done quite a lot. And I'm sorry for doing referring to the episode with Anthony Barrett again. But I want to bring up, he mentioned something interesting as well that the senators that appointed Caligula to the throne also were not were alive in the time of Nero, and they were also the ones to appoint Nero to the throne. Well, of course, I don't think they had an idea what they were in for at the time, but it's an interesting point that those appointed Caligula to the throne also appointed Nero as well. Well, it, it hints, doesn't it, that they must have got something out of it. Right. So so senators were not really supposed to be getting their hands in commerce. I mean, that's mm. what the equestrian order did. But they were, you know, big farm holders and, and, and so they made a lot of money. Um and, and the fact is that they probably stood to benefit by having someone that they had appointed as opposed to somebody else that they had not appointed. So better the your guy than their guy. I, I think that's part of it. Um and and, and again maybe promises were made by Agrippina to some of these people that, you know, we're going to run a tight show here. We've got a clear agenda, what we're going to do. Um, we're not going to act like Caligula did. We're, or, you know, we're, we're actually going to spend money wisely and uh, trust us. It'll be a good show. But also I want to mention that, the, and I kind of want to draw a parallel here with, with a later emperor. When you mentioned, you talk, I'm going to talk about the first Nero this throughout Jonathan Greaves in a moment, but I wanted, and it's law for acting as I talked about, it, it kind of draws a parallel to Commodus who loved gladiator games and wanted to be in the arena by gladiators. It kind of makes you think they're kind of similar in a sense, both, both those emperors. I think what it highlights is that the Roman style of succession which, which the first point of the call was to appoint your own kin, right? And it wasn't going to be a woman, it was going to be a man, um, restricted the talent pool, right? So um, in the Julio-Claudians under Augustus, he actually tried to nominate different people, but through disease, sickness, and um, injury on the battlefield, his choices narrowed down to one man. By the time he got to uh, Tiberius, he'd run out of choices. There really only was... Caius Caligula left, and Caius Caligula didn't get to make a choice. He was killed before he got there. And again, in the case of uh, Claudius, um, he decided to sideline his own natural son in favor of his wife's son. And you know why he did that, you can speculate on. And certainly, uh, Robert Graves in I Claudius seems to suggest that that was because he wanted to bring back the Republic. But that's that's I'm sure totally fictional. Um, so in the case of Nero. Um, 
you know, you, you've got an individual here who has got immense power, in, enormous amounts of money to build it, and and the world's the play thing, right? He can do what it ha- he wants to do. Um, he he gets married to uh, a, a woman that he is in love with for a while, and, and then things start going off the rails. He um, he arranges for her to to, to to be bumped off. He falls in love with Popea, right? Who there's another lady, and 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 now we begin to see some of the rather strange behaviors that come out. It, there's the public face. I mean, literally, the face you see on the coins changes, and it's fascinating. If you take the, within the first one or two years of his reign in 54, you see this kind of young, quite athletic-looking profile, and then it ages as he goes through. And by the time you get to his, uh, what we got his uh, his thirtieth uh, year, he he came in at 17, he dies at 30. He looks really quite unhealthy. He's got this thick double chin, and he and he's got this sort of rather scrappy beard that that grows right under his chin. It as kind well. of looks demonic in a way, doesn't it? Well, that's how. Well, so that's an interesting point. We think that, but he must have thought, and the suggestion is that he would have seen the images that go on the coins. I mean, he seemed to worry about everything else, so he must have picked the images. He must have thought that that image projected strength and vigor. And, you know, this is what an emperor should look like. And maybe he was inspired by some portraits that he saw on Greek coins or some of the other um, uh, client kingdoms and so forth. And, of course, he had they're wonderfully engraved. I mean, these are really works of art. So um, under uh, Nero, you, you get the sense that because he is himself an artist, he appreciates that, that what's invests in things. But that must be an image that he wants people to see. And and we now don't get that message because we think, well, this just looks like a man who's out of shape and just hasn't shaved in a while. Um, but you know, maybe he thinks maybe this is what a strong Greek athlete looks like because he's a bit of a he's a Hellenist. He he actually likes the heritage of the Greek world, so he actually begins to spend more time in Greece. He becomes a charioteer. He actually uh, wins chariot races. He takes part. I mean, in... of course, he won. He's the emperor. Who's going to defeat them? Well, yeah, and maybe you'd be a fool to sort of make sure that your chariot, you know, uh, doesn't take over his. Um, I, y- yes, and it's interesting, by the way, that when I was researching Germanicus uh, at Olympia, there's an inscription where, in fact, either he or a chariot that he had actually sponsored also won. So these people kind of played the game along that, you know. Hey, yeah. It's just just for one year. He won't be back next year. We can all have a fair competition next year. But you know this 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 whole idea of um, um, Nero's got talent, right? It's a sort of uh, the celebrity showman type uh, that 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 is is different. I mean, no other emperor has done this. But actually, in in his private life, I don't know that other than his mother, who might be the one that's saying no. So the relationship between him and her breaks down. And I was talking about Octavia and Popea. In the meantime, the stories go, and this is where we get to the adult bit, is that in order to sort of try and keep his attention on the things that she wants him to do, she offers him herself to him to have sex with, which is a pretty appalling thought. But again, this sort of suggests that the corruption and depravity of Roman morals within this family at this point, and it's, and it's, it's another rather kind of... Uh, eyebrow-raising story, but it's the sort of thing that, again, Tacitus and Suetonius telling people about would lead to inevitable downfall. I mean, it's the sort of corruption that, that would seem to be there. The story is that in, in order to um, get his, his mother out of the way, 
um, he he invites her to I think it's the other side of uh, the Bay of Naples, and 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 then um, on the return journey, she's she goes on this boat, and the boat is designed to fall apart and sink. Um, and there have been experiments to try and build one because there's slightly different interpretations and uh, in, in the three sources that we have, the boat actually doesn't sink, as it turns out. So what he instead of her drowning, he then has to trump up charges so that she in fact can be executed. And by this time, she's so disgusted by her own son that she basically tells the the guy with the sword, "Stick it here," pointing to her uh, her, her middle section, basically saying, "This is this is what gave him birth." stab me here and it's 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 a rather mm. sort of um heroic but also awful mm. uh picture and in fact you know that the execution takes place and nero comes along looks at the body and sees her naked and begins to realize she really was quite beautiful wasn't she and you know it, it's all rather you know um, um unpleasant when I, you think about it but uh well i want to talk about as well that you know, other and the story where she he tries to drown his mother when she's on a boat and she does manage to swim to the shore and just brush up and then moves on, basically. Yeah. I, so, so again, I mean, that, that points to her being an immensely strong woman physically, right? Mm. But, the, but, the, but, but the undercurrent of that is that she'd lost control of the, of the story and the control of her son. And and uh, you know he was he was more interested in his performance arts and having people bow to his will. And of course, he famously uh, kicks uh, one of his wives uh, mm. to death, effectively. So you see, really, a kind of mental breakdown or tyranny—someone who can't control his emotions. Um, and, and I would say to that is that he's surrounded. Once his mother's off the off the, there's nobody around him that's mm. saying no. Maybe bar two people. And he starts his Prince of with, with two people who seem to be good influences. One is Boris, who is his Praetorian cohort commander, uh, who seems to be eminently sensible. But the other one is Seneca the Younger, who's the playwright, this philosopher, whose works survive in, in large amounts. And he was, he was uh, a writer on ethics and living a moral life and these sorts of things. So, And he wrote speeches so that Nero would actually read speeches that Seneca mm-hmm. had actually written for him. Um, and then when those people uh, go off the stage, there's basically a, the guardrails are taken off and he can just be the powerful autocrat with, with nobody saying that's a bad idea. Um, and then we have the fire run. And I want, before we move on, I want to talk to, to the Great Fire. I want to more talk about his mother a bit. It's not talking about you know, some stories that she you know, posed to her husband and yada, yada, yada. But how much of that is propaganda that, that kind of portrays her in a bad light and how much do we know that she really, really was this manipulative woman and that she really wanted power for herself and how much do we know that is actually true and what is propaganda? I, I don't know in all truth that we can really know and because again you look at the sources okay so so Tacitus is writing really about the way that Roman politics declines and mm. and his reference point is some sort of memory of a roman republic that that functioned in in a, in a sort of fair and sane way and when was that was that the the fifth century or the fourth century we're never quite clear when that is um he was kind of like make rome great again kind of camp if you will mm. um there's the trope though that's that that this is a woman and 
Romans had a natural sort of distrust of powerful women. Now, we haven't got to talk about uh, um, Boudicca much. We will do. Um, the other side of this is that, for example, you can pick examples of the Ethiopian king, uh, queen, uh, Kandaki, uh, Amirenas, for example, under the time of Augustus, who seemed to be able to give the Romans a run for their money. Then we've got Cleopatra, of course, who gave Mark Antony and Augustus uh, a reason to be uh, bothered and, and and ultimately, you know, uh, she she was taken off the scene completely. And Livia is another example of a strong woman and the way that she's portrayed in the Roman accounts as someone who has an agenda that's 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 maneuvering behind the scenes for her interests rather than either her husband's or for the good of the Roman Republic. And again, it's very hard. If those are tropes, if those are things which become like stereotypes, it's very hard to, to know whether Agrippina the Younger was use the word wicked like that or whether that's a fabrication of propaganda and, and i also i mean the, the, the first thing to notice is that, that one of the first coins that's minted when nero comes to the throne is a picture of him and his mother i mean the, i don't think there are any other coins that have literally the the the, the, the autocrat with the mother right i mean this is just done very mm. um it, there's also an account where one of the first passwords that he gives to his Commander is, I think it's um, Optima Mater, basically the best mother. So, so you know, this young twenty-five-year-old must at this point mm. think the world of her. It's just that does she become overbearing? Does he just sort of say, "Well, I'm actually the boss, and you can't tell me what I want to do," and then this all kind of breaks down after that point. And of course, you know, he seems to have a, a high libido as well. So, you know, the fact that he, he wants to do what he can and nobody can stop him. So, uh, it, it's really hard to know because. Our sources tend to be biased, and there's a reason why they tell you what they tell us. And you mentioned Boudicca, so let's talk a little bit about the Sixth Boudicca Revolt around 60 AD and how we don't have to go into too much detail because, of course, that is an episode in itself. So let's talk mm. more. Let's talk, talk a little bit about the Boudicca Revolt because I know you want and, to talk about let, Let's do that because let, let, let's do that. There's, there's a couple of authors I could suggest to you, but the. Um, the, the essence of it is this, that the, the story as we have it is that uh, the Romans tend to be a bit heavy handed when they enter new territory. And what made uh, the Roman conquest a little bit, Britain, and I, I alluded to earlier. <laughs> well, so, for example, that not all of Britain was Roman. They had client kings or client queens. And I mentioned Togedubnus earlier, who actually was 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 a king of the Regni. Uh, which was seems to have been a, an offshoot of the Atrebates down in the south of Britain. Um, the other tribes were basically conquered, but the but the people who basically were clients, allies, were basically left alone. They they had maybe to provide supplies and uh, and equipment to the the invading army, probably you know, on demand. But they were basically allowed to run. And up in the north, uh, there were the Brigantes, where King Prasutagus um, entered into a deal with Claudius. So so he was left to run his affairs. And in the case of the Ikeni, who were the tribe that basically own what we now talk of Norfolk, uh, going, I think, into Cambridgeshire, uh, that the deal with with the, the king there was the same kind of terms. While you're alive, we will respect your territory. But when you die, this becomes part of the Roman Imperium. 
And this part of the deal didn't seem to be either understood or the message, the memo hadn't got to his daughters. And that the, the way it's portrayed is that uh, the Ikeni in the meantime had been borrowing money from Roman money to, to, to do uh, their own projects with, because no doubt this was the first time they'd been actually offered money. And uh, the, the army, I, I guess, comes to enforce we're coming here to collect the money. And they said, what money? You know, we thought this was a gift. And it turns out that was a misunderstanding, whereupon Boudicca's daughters apparently are, are raped. And in this outrage, um, Boudicca, as the mother, understandably, wants revenge, wants the culprits. And the Romans, we don't understand what the problem is. You know, this is now our territory. Oh, by the way, you need to start paying back on your loans. And um, she then forms an alliance with the Trinovantes, the Catavalloni, and the Achaean. So basically, that takes the Middle Eastern sector of the British Isles into a situation of revolt. And to collapse this whole thing, which happened between either 61 or 60, it's not quite clear from the dating, but as we have it, um, she basically, with her alliance, they strike Colchester, they strike St. Albans, they strike London. And effectively London is is not even a city in the sense it has a status it's a it's a place of commerce that's burned uh, St Albans burned Colchester burned and this is famously where the Temple of Claudius is and the veterans are based and the veterans put up a stiff resistance but even they can't overcome this marauding uh, war band of, of, of three tribes and they start moving across the country interesting enough the provincial governor um, I think it's Paulinus, is actually out campaigning in North Wales. I'm, I'm from Wales, so this is close to home for me. And he's out on the Isle of Anglesey defeating Druids, who they see as being the sort of last point of national resistance. Um, the resistance to having actually under Karatakis uh, has, has since failed, and, uh, and the Druids are, are seen as the last point, and they have to capture them. So while he is away, the, 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 the British resistance spreads. So finally, he, he comes in and, and defeats them at a battle. Uh, we don't quite know where that battle took place. There are several suggestions where it might be. Um, and it seems to be somewhere in the Midlands of the United Kingdom. And she's either killed on the battlefield or she goes away and either commits suicide or is, is killed that way. But the point is, we don't know where she's buried. Um, all sorts of interesting theories about that. But the Romans get control back of, of the island at that point. And all this is happening under Nero and this is all uh, rather embarrassing because the campaign had been going to so well under Claudius and it sort of hits the brakes at this point um, with great cost associated with it. I mean, you know, the destruction of three major cities um, is something to be worried about. And in fact, they almost lose Britannia at this point. It's it's, it's kind of near on thing. But what's remarkable is when you look at the archaeology, there, there's a layer of black ash in these cities, which archaeologists do find. The speed of recovery is the thing that's remarkable. But literally within a year or two years, they're rebuilding. So the, the, the Roman project to establish Britannia is, is a go. That, that, that the Romans are committed to making this happen. I mean, there are there are four legions. Uh, they're now scattered around the country. So that the, the legions of uh, they've gone as far southwest as they can in Vespasian, and they relocate to South Wales. First in Usk, then in Carlion, which is where they're based. Uh, they're up in uh, Deva, Chester, and they, they're, they're going up to Lincoln in, in the north part. So so really, there's this great big fan of the great big rump of the south, the Midlands, Wales, and the southwest are effectively under Roman control. But 
The degree to which it's Romanized, that's the stuff that archaeologists and historians still debate, uh, because just because you actually build a city doesn't mean that all the land around it is, is, is Roman. The big challenge that they always have in this process of Romanization is the degree to which they can bring the, the tribal elites on board and then their followers and their, their, their courtiers then follow them. And it takes them a generation or two or three to actually make this work. And in fact, in some parts of Britain, even all the way up to the time of Hadrian, it, they don't really succeed. And, you know, that's a whole other podcast, which hopefully we can do another time. But um, under Nero, um, he, he manages through his generals to pull it from the brink of disaster. Uh, but it was really very near to, to, to being lost. Hmm. And of course, let's talk about before the road to talk about some other things that people probably most associate with Nero, the Great Fire in 64. Mm. But I want to talk a little bit before this is a new religion that entered the chat, and that is Christianity, which is a bit Ooh. troublesome for the Rome. So let's talk a little bit about Christianity in the Rome because they kind of. And again, we'll see this in the great fire that they become, as the Jews would be later in, for the Christians, they do become the scapegoats of the Roman world, at least early on in their history. Well, it's a big subject, right? So we haven't got much time mm. here. So, so I'll be a bit controversial, to... maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that too, but, but it's an interesting, it is an interesting area to discuss. So um, that the early Christians were actually Jews. Uh, so, so, so Christianity is rooted in the Judaic tradition of Mosaic law, the law of Moses. Um, so are they identifying themselves as Christians in the way we think of themselves? Or are they really just Jews who have now seen the Messiah? They've chosen to believe that the Messiah has come. And the traditional Jewish interpretation would be, well, the Jew, that the Jewish Messiah, the Moshiach, was going to be... Um, a leader that would bring the tribes together, would establish the freedom of the land of Israel, Judea. But clearly this man had uh, died on, a, on, a, on a, a cross. So that sort of, for a lot of Jews, didn't, didn't gel. That, 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 that was kind of a contradiction. He couldn't be the Messiah because he died. The, the real one will actually be alive and, um, and, and, and then the, the country will thrive. Well, in this instance, it seems to be that uh, little communities spread across initially the Near East. So we're talking the Levant area. So that would be Judea, Syria, going into Egypt. Um, a lot of it comes down to, to the, the, the proselytizing of either Saul, famous Saul of Tarsus, Paul. Um, and we know from his writings, I mean, there's the, the earliest ones in the tradition, the Christian tradition, where he is writing directly to these individual communities or churches to inspire them. And, and where he goes on his tours is to be able to um, bolster them and help them spread, I guess the expression is the, is the good word. He, of course, is himself a Roman, um, but he's a Jewish Roman, which, which leads to some very interesting things because he causes a great many in the Jewish uh, community to be upset because he's basically telling a different version of their tradition the Torah, from the Torah, and on the other hand, you've also got the story of St. Peter, right? So, so you've got these two towering figures within the, the Christian tradition. Um, in the case of Paul, um, he, he tours Asia Minor, um, motivating the communities. He basically is arrested in, in Jerusalem because he's, he takes this proselytizing too far. The Jews complain He's arrested, and there's the famous scene where, of course, they, they, the, the Tribune takes him, and the centurion's just about to whip him. 
because a non-Roman has not does not have the protection that a Roman does. And basically, a Roman citizen just simply says, Kiwis Romanus sum, I am a Roman citizen. And they basically have to they have to stand back. They can't harm that person anyway. It's nearly always a man. They can't harm him uh, in any way. So so in this instance, the story is that you know, they, they basically tear his tunic and they're just about to whip him. And he says, Kiwis Romanus, is this how you treat a Roman citizen? And the tribune goes, oh, wow, gosh, you didn't say that before. And they have to basically... Let him go. And in fact, um, that their idea is to hand him back to the to the to the uh, the, the Pharisees and the and, and the uh, the Jewish council of, of high priests. Um, but he basically invokes, "I would like to be tried." So they take him to Caesarea with this armed escort, and the intention is that he will actually go to face trial by the emperor, and that the charge presumably be a sedition, something like that. Um, and then he embarks on this journey, and of course, there's the shipwreck and all the rest of it. So, so his legend grows. In the meantime, there's there's Peter, um, who at the time of Nero is one of those people who is um, um, arrested and and, and uh, thrown to the circus where he fate, you know meets his fate there. So these two kind of things. So you've got the, the tradition of Peter uh, and, and Paul, but all the while there are these little communities, and they seem to be the the, the disaffected people, you know, the, the people who are are encouraged by this idea that um, if you live this life well, there is an afterlife. Which, as I understand it in the Jewish tradition, there isn't. It's about living a good life now and actually living according to the the laws of Moses, and and and, and being an ethical person within within the prescriptions of the Torah and uh, all the other documents that define the Jewish tradition. So this is where Christianity was different. Uh, but the problem is, is it challenged the Roman way of looking at the world, which is. It's, it's, for example, it, it's not monotheistic. So in the same way the Jews had their Yahweh, so the Christians had Yahweh by effectively another name, um, but they certainly rejected any any calls to you must respect the divinity of the emperor, the fact that he in fact is the, the, the link between effectively the Olympian gods and human society. They rejected that outright. Mm-hmm. And that was the problem. That's where things got tricky. Because um, as long as you went along with it, as long as you observed the holidays and the feasts, you could choose any god you liked. Um, you could be any culture you liked. They just all got along. And, and in that way, Roman society was very permissive. It's just when other people would rub against that. And the Jews fit, hit it regularly when in the Greek communities, the Greeks would say, hey, we're having the feast for Hermes. And then the Jews would respond, no, that's Shabbat. We can't do anything on the Shabbat because that's when we that's when we uh, you know, focus on our traditions and on our God. And then they would be accused of not being citizens and there would be all this sort of thing going on. There'd be riots in places like Alexandria and so on. And this is the sort of thing that sort of began to characterize Christianity. So the Romans tend to look at those as being troublemakers. And the net result of that is that you might have some extremes within Christianity who see this as being, let's fast track this. If the if if the point is to get to end of days, right, to actually bring about the kingdom of God, let's not wait, let's bring this right now. Um, and this is where things seem to intersect with the great fire of Rome. And um, the archaeology says one story, but is 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 there maybe an incident which triggers this thing i i don't know but there is this there's this tradition by the 50s and 60s ad of um a sort of darkening of that the world is coming to an end 
And, you know, we, we've seen in our own days that there will be cults that uh, that believe that, that, you know, the world's coming to an end and we all have to prepare for this. And then, of course, the day comes and they just respond, we got the day wrong. Um, so, so there's a suggestion that maybe that Christians were doing this and they're associated with the fire of Rome. I think the archaeology shows it was just, it was a hot, sunny day, a, a bakery uh, had a furnace going and somebody wasn't tending to it, just like the fires of London in 1666. And unfortunately, large, up to 15% of the city was, was destroyed over a period of days. Um, and um, they were scapegoats. They, they, they got to be the ones that, that, that carried the can for it. And let's talk about Nero's role in this, because of course, as we talked about off the camera and off the record, and of course, we mentioned that most people probably associate Nero with is the, that he fiddled in Rome. And as, it, as, as I said, we talked about this before we recorded, that there, most people would say, no, he didn't, because there was no fiddle in that time. But it, it should be. That there was, you know, the harp that was kind of coded as fiddle, as far as I understand, and that, but of course, and again, I'm referring to Anthony Barrett's book here, which I've mentioned quite a few times. I'm sorry, but the, the, but still, in the Rome is burning, which he wrote a while ago, he mentioned that Nero can be blamed for many things, but the, so the fire of Rome is not one of them, and. Uh, he, because he was quite far away from Rome at the time. He was a, at a party, I well, think, well, he, he was outside the city. Yes, he was an Antium. Um, and so the fire started out apparently on the 19th of July, 64. Um, and my notes began a, a, a night in a shop beside the Circus Maximus, which is the racetrack between the Aventine and Palatine Hills. Wind fanned the flames. Suetonius states that the fire lasted six, six days and seven nights. Tacitus mentions that the fire halted, but flared up again after the sixth day, a fact supported by Domitianic, an inscription, which refers to nine days of burning, taking the event to the 28th of July. So so Nero was not in Rome on the 19th of July, maybe even the 20th of July. Um, and from what we can gather, it was only when his own house started burning, then he came in because, you know, his stuff was being burned and he was concerned about that. Um, so, so about 15% of the city... Uh, was burning. In fact, in Barrett's book, there's a map there. It's a great big black blob in, in the heart of the city. Um, now, as we were talking earlier, fires happened regularly in Rome. Floods happened regularly in Rome. Famine happened regularly. I mean, for, for the city at this time is is not really the big city of monuments, a lot of marble buildings and all the rest of it. And as, as you, you pointed out, the Colosseum wasn't built at this point. That comes later. So we've got a city which has got lots of winding streets and tall buildings which are not well built. They're rickety. They're a lot of them made of uh, wood and wattle and daub type of thing, and sometimes they fall down. But the point is, they're they're basically fire hazards. Um, and and the, the result of that is, if you get a fire in a barn, um, in, in, in a bakery, you know, it, on a dry night with the wind blowing, um, the, the the embers can fly around, and before you know it, you've got one building burning. Um, and as we were talking, you know, about, for example, uh, imagine the one houses. guy going home from that, that bakery. Did I leave a stone down? <laughs> Say that again. Imagine the one guy that comes home from that bakery and one, oh. did I leave a stone down? Yeah, well, but but see again, I mean, there are parallels <laughs> with like the the Great Fire of London. I mean, you know that that's supposed to, I think, start in Pudding Lane, and that was all totally innocent. And of course, you know, nobody. 
I knew that until much later, but the point is the consequences of the fire in London and in Rome were profound because you had this great big swathe of city right in the heart, which was burned down. I mean, the Romans lost cultural monuments, they lost documents, they lost trophies and, and, and lots of stuff, which really was, was, was historical meaningful to them, just as in, happened in, in Rome. But what, what, what's interesting, bring it back to Nero, he didn't go sing uh, with 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 a with a fiddle. The fiddle didn't come until the 16th, 17th century. So that's just an historical anomaly. The other thing suggestion is that he might well because he was an artist and a singer, he would be dressed as a kitharoidus in his long gown, uh, and he'd be plucking away at a lyre. Well, that all seems to be arrant nonsense. He 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 may have just simply like Sulla did, by the way, I think with Carthage quote from Homer or something about how, you know, the city was burning. And then some other people spread, oh, Nero mentioned that. And of course, they make up this story. But, but actually what Nero did is for the people who were blighted, like Tiberius and other people before him, they opened up public buildings, they opened up parks, they provided accommodations as far as they could. Because, you know, I'm in a city of about 750,000 people, something like that, maybe a million. You know, a lot of these people suddenly lost everything. And you know, so there were those needs to be dealt with. There was the need to feed, um, clothe, and and ho- house these people. And it would be many years before they rebuild for ordinary people. Um, and in that regards, emperors, and this is a point that, that, that Barrett makes in his book, in times of crisis like that, emperors could be really good. Tiberius actually compensated people when their buildings burned down uh, in the in the 20s. AD and Nero did the same thing, and and yeah, this is this is the sort of thing they thought of being. They seemed to be ultimately the the patron of the people, and they would do what they could to actually make things right. What went slightly wrong, and then became really seriously wrong, was that with so much land now available, um, Nero took the decision to actually build this enormous public park, and it really was public rather than just an exclusive like a manor house private grounds. The famous uh, Domus Aurea, the golden house. And and what we know from archaeology, because it's now been discovered um, in recent times, and you can even visit it uh, when the buildings open, he, it, it's basically a huge swath of parkland with with a with a huge big lake, a sort of man-made lake, uh, surrounded by porticos, uh, with a long gallery of, of, of uh, columned, colonnaded buildings, one of which had a high sort of dome ceiling, and apparently the, the stone could spin around, and it, all of these buildings were decorated to the highest standards of the day, I mean, with, with, with some of the best mosaics ever made at that time, um, and the decorations of the walls, and all of this can be seen in, in, in the much that has survived. And the optics were terrible. So he may have had this idea, um, we've all suffered a big disaster, hey, I'm turning this into Parkland, which we can all enjoy, it's an amenity for the people, it doesn't appear they saw it that way. They were hurting and they were seeing all this money being spent on what would seem to be a glamour project, um, a vanity project. And it, it, it had the effect of really not only ruining his reputation, which had been pretty good up to that point. And like I said earlier, he actually helped people in the fire. But the damage to the economy of 15 percent of the city being ripped out, I mean, they started debasing the coins. So, so they, it was literally hitting people in their pockets as far as they had pockets at all. So, you know, there's there's a there's a, a personal impact for this vanity project, which is obviously costing a lot of money. Now, the other side would be, well, he would employ a lot of people to build this. So, ironically, you could say 
this is sort of, sort of Keynesian economics project where you know people do the work, you know he pays them and they they they, they can rebuild their lives. But you know, sixty four to sixty eight, four years. I mean, this is this is being built really, really, really fast, right? And it's being built to a very high standard. But these people still haven't got their houses really re- restructured and so on, and it sets up antagonism at a very high level between the Senate and between uh, the emperor. And outside of Rome, people see this as being um, a grotesque development. And it comes to a head, really. There's a, there's a revolt of the army in Gaul under a man called Vindex. And uh, that's, that's the first problem. The Jews in Judea in 66 are revolting as well. So two years after Firearm, there are now two big, big problems. One is in, in Gaul, the other one is in Judea. So now he's fighting not only an economic and reorganization problem in the city of Rome, he's now got two, two wars to fight. And uh, this, this, this really challenges him as a leader. And I think people at that point say, this man is more interested in singing and art and building a palace than actually dealing with the fundamental problems. And then it all goes horribly wrong after that point. Hmm. And of course, you mentioned his wife Pompeia, Pompeia uh, who he eventually kills. And mm-hmm. there is a story that they find a slave, I think, or a eunuch, and it dresses him up as Pompeia, and he had to pretend to be his wife because it kind of looked like her, because he does it didn't seem to generally so, be, love her. But the, the story kind of tells you how how kind of went off the rails a bit. So there were two. There were two male um, slaves. One was Sporus, and the other was Pythagoras. And I think it was Sporus that he had castrated, uh, and, and and he would take him to Greece on his campaigns. And, and what's remarkable is is how few years all this is happening. Um, and so he he marries this person in public, right? Which which again, um, even to the broad-minded uh, Romans, was was a grotesque sort of abuse of his position. Um, I, I think they would have tolerated it had it been in private, but he sort of rubbed their faces in this, and he could then he could make the point: this is all dramatic, and I'm an artist, etc., etc., etc. But, but, but to their to their core, Roman values were actually quite backward-looking. They, they sort of believed in old-time virtues uh, and dressing up in costumes and singing and marrying a man was not one of those things they 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 regarded terribly highly. So this man basically was acting as the lowest kind of. Uh, human in their eyes, which which was unfortunate for him, but yes, so so this is apparently what he did, and I and I think it was Sporus rather than Pythagoras, um, and it, it just it just points to growing chaos, right? Mm. So the, uh, uh, sort of like torments uh, of people trying to rebuild their lives in Rome, and military uprisings. I mean, when when the army starts to lose faith, you have a problem. Um, and interestingly enough, one of the generals that had been involved in sort of setting up a German campaign was one man, Karl Galba. And in the meantime, Galba had gone off to head up the legions in um, in the Iberian Peninsula in um, Hispania, Tarraconensis, I think, uh, where the army, I think there were three legions at that point, or maybe one. And um, the Senate looked to him to, to put a stop to it. They found mm-hmm. their man. And now Nero was was effectively um, a man without a following. Uh, and it ends up by basically he's declared an enemy of the state. And in fact, they invoke basically a punishment of the old style, which means that whereas before a Roman citizen basically would be allowed to exile themselves 
and anybody helping them, they they were they were to deny, deny them water and salt and bread. I think were the conditions. But in this kind, in this particular case, the man could be arrested and flogged, which was a terrible humiliation. Bearing in mind, a Roman citizen was not supposed mm-hmm. to be subjected to any of those things, and we talked about that in the context of of, of uh, the later Saint Paul. And this was what faced Nero, and then we get into the grand finale at this point. Hmm. Um. Think of the grand finale, and it is interesting that where Caligula on the road for four years, Nero, who almost was equally as bad as Caligula, was allowed to reign for 14 years. Right. Which suggests that for most of that time, um, people liked what he was doing. Right? Um, or, or they were just willing to tolerate it. So really what that points to is the events of 66, 64, sort of that, that, that window there, mm. leading to the military revolts um, is where the whole thing starts to unravel. And of course, he was not a military man. He couldn't go to the legions and say, I am your commander in chief, you know, and I've got your best interests at heart because he probably hadn't been to a military camp. I don't, don't recall a single instance when he did that. Um, so he would not have been taken seriously in the way that a Tiberius or a Germanicus or even a Claudius, because Claudius had that heritage. You've got to remember in this regard that Nero married into the family through his mother, right? And okay, he could point to Domitius Hernabarbus was a was a was a pretty respected commander, but he didn't have the stature of a Drusus or a Tiberius or a Germanicus to be able to point to. So in that regard, he was a non-entity. Hmm. And of course, let's talk about the assassination. Um, he did wasn't assassinated, he took suicide, if I remember correctly, because he could not stand being called an enemy of the state, which was would be the end of Nero, which would again launch into the year of the four emperors and the rise of Flavian things, which is a whole other series. Well, the, the, the story that we've got, I think, and I think it is uh, Tacitus, is very dramatic. It, re- it reads something, it would make a great episode. If it hasn't already been, I think actually Peter Yusnoff did it when, when he was uh, when he was acting as Nero all those years ago in the fifties. The, um, the in essence, uh, having learned that he's public enemy number one and the army's out to get him, the Praetorians are hunting him down. He flees and and he's taken with a, with a servant, a slave, or a freedman, I forget which, to uh, one of his properties, and it's basically empty and um, and and. Uh, I guess the first instinct is if I if I hide I can I can I can hide this thing out and calm will prevail and I can I can come back out again but that's not how it's going to be um, and he tries to commit suicide with with some uh, anxiety and you can imagine what that feels like uh, and then finally mm-hmm. apparently utters the word qualis artifex pereo which is translated as what an artist dies with me uh, and and he stabs himself. Apparently not so much that he dies instantly or bleeds out totally, by which time a Praetorian cohortsman comes up to 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 basically offer him or to take it out. And he says, you're too late. Um, so you, you've got this rather bizarre situation. He's be, he's being a drama queen even in his last moments. And, and it makes a wonderfully dramatic um, circular story to end that chapter within uh, Tacitus's annals. Because ultimately, what he's pointing to is, again, the tragedy of the Roman Republic as it's corroded by ever more mad people. Uh, and there are some good people, there are some heroes that stand up to this, and under the treason trials of Tiberius, there are people who try and stand up 
and, and defend themselves with honor and they take their own life. And I was just reading, I just read Cordus uh, Cremutius um, was a Roman historian that was accused of uh, of writing some defamatory remarks. He apparently pr- praised um, Cassius and Brutus, which would have been not a problem under uh, uh, Julius Caesar or under Augustus, but apparently it seemed to be a problem for Sejanus specifically. So he addressed the, the Senate and then went away and starved himself to death. So here's an ordinary senator able to take his life, but Nero has to make a big thing out of it. Um, and to a writer like Tacitus, it's 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 the way you sort of end the story because now the the whole imperial family has come to an end. The Julio Claudians end with Nero's own death, which is if you think about all the people, if you go all the way back to Julius and they were the Augustus, all the intricate plans and all the things they tried to do, that's how it ended. Uh, it, it it's it's extraordinary. And if you're going to write a story um, and actually try and convince people. Of, of 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 it being a real story, you might have some difficulties because the people are crazy and they do terrible things. But this apparently is real history. And let's talk about succession for a bit because, as you know, the year of the four emperors happened right after the death of Nero, which is clear there was no succession that Nero had in mind. But and as we talked about how his wife was pregnant and accused her down the stairs, I think, and that's how and that's how she died. But was there anyone else that could potentially in the younger audience that could have succeeded Nero at this point? I mean, do we know if he had any succession in mind? Um, I, I, I don't know that there were uh, any obvious people at that time because he hadn't. I mean, he kicked his one wife to death who was carrying the baby. So, I mean, mm. that, that was that was one uh, potential candidate of succession, but would have been very, very, very young at the time. Um, so, so. That the Senate basically throws its weight behind Galba, who's the military commander, and, and if you see coins of his, so it's it's very interesting. So that these candidates for imperial power very quickly use the coins to assert their own control. So Nero dies, and very quickly because he's aware of what's going on. I mean, you know, he's been declared uh, enemy, and, and and so Galba's army's on the move. And he knows that that's going to end. So very quickly, I don't recall whether it's either mobile mints or maybe it's the mint in Rome, start minting coins with the portrait of Galba, who's got this very stern, kind of really pronounced nose and looks like a really no-nonsense man. You wouldn't want to have an argument with him because he'd he'd shut you down or something. Um, And and so he comes onto the scene and rules for about three months, as I recall. But in the meantime, what's happened is over in Judea, and I mentioned the 66 where where the Jews are revolting by, this time the Flavian family, comprised of father Vespasian and son Titus, are making quite swift progress. They're going through the Galilee and they're coming down, taking out uh, fortified cities, and they capture one man whose name is Josephus who's uh, basically sponsored as a Roman citizen becomes Flavius Josephus. And of course, we can have a whole, we have a whole podcast on Josephus. But the point is, Vespasian himself becomes a candidate. He basically leaves his son to carry on the campaign because the war's still going on there. And he now starts to, re- to lead his own counter-offensive to actually himself become the princeps. And in the meantime... Well, wasn't there a prophecy that Josephus said that something like, 
you will make a, become an emperor or whatever. You will become a great man. So they made it just a policing to survive, but I think believe this or something like this. There, there, there is a story, and I think it's actually interesting for sort of maybe in, in, in one of the um, rabbinical texts about how uh, you know he, he he's a very quick thinker, and in order to save his his butt, because the story about Josephus is that he was one of the, I think, commanders at Jotapata, which was one of the strongholds, um, I think it's in the south part of uh, the Galilee. And uh, they all basically hide in, in the bowels of this fort. And knowing that the Romans are going to win, they decide the only way out with honor is to commit suicide. So they all take, you know, the short straw, as it were, they all take turns. Josephus was to... a clever chap getting out of that one, wasn't he? Yeah. So, so ironically, he contrives... When everybody else has stabbed each other and he's supposed to be the last man who would stab himself, he surrenders. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's, well, no, I don't so, think you will. <laughs> so, so this is, this is another one of these terrific stories. And, and maybe that's actually true. I don't know, but that, that's the story as we get it. And, um, so he presents himself to uh, Vespasian who say, what's this Jew doing here? I have no time for this. And say, ah, but I, but I see great things. And, you know, He's a writer, and it turns out he he can write a story which we now have as the uh, Bellum Gallic uh, um, Judaicum, the, the the Jewish War, which uh, was written in Greek, um, that uh, lords the achievements of this Flavian family um, and how they are able to crush this uh, this rebellion that breaks down um, from sixty six to finally the fall of Jerusalem in seventy, but that's well outside Nero's time. And in the meantime, he's marching ever west with, with, with contingents of his army to be able to assert his control. Galba uh, ends up by fighting with a, a, a another uh, uh, challenger whose name is uh, Otho. So you've got Galba, uh, Otho, and they fight on the Via Postumia, which uh, is the road that runs along the northern part of Italy. And in fact, uh, at this point then, I think Galba's forces... Uh, they failed, did they not? And then uh, Otho is then facing off with the next one, who's Vitellius, and takes his own life when he sees that there's uh, no 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 route to victory for him. And then finally, there's a showdown between Vitellius and Vespasian, who is the last man standing on the battlefield at this point. And um, it, it, it's amazing. This all happens in the space of a year, the year of four emperors. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that, that I think got me thinking when you said that uh, the prophecy of oh you will be a great man and we made last year which is over the year old which is crazy to think about. We made an episode about Agrippa and where he has a similar prophecy as well that oh you will make a great man one day which it was kind of a common thing to say for for you know this kind of prophecy those made prophecies that oh you will be great oh you will do great things. Well, again, so 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 here's where our style of writing history differs from people of the ancient world. So if you look at Cassius Dio, right, I mean, he's really a chronicler, and, and he goes year by year by year, and, and he will go to sometimes great pains to list out the omens of that year. Um, so I was just writing a chapter yesterday on my book about uh, Tiberius, where before he and Augustus go to Gaul in 16 BC, the day after they leave, the omens are terrible. There are ants in the forum. The ants are you know, swarming and it's all dreadful. And, and presumably, you know, you could look up a book of uh, what, what is the meaning of all these omens and portents and you can say, yes, a very bad thing. 
Um, so, so history is this strange mixture of anecdotes, um, known events which are recorded in public documents, um, soothsayers' observations, auguries, these sorts of things, and you know, the smart man can understand that, well, this is a prediction of that because this happened over here. And so, I mean, that's not how we do history, though, is it? I mean, we, 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 have, a, we, have, a, we have a humanist approach to history. It's, a, it's an Enlightenment age objectivity that we try to bring in to our telling. So this is why, in a sense, um, I know that history comes from the Greek word historia, which means inquiry. But I'm just going to force this sort of association here that ancient history has a, a lot of emphasis on the story. Um, sometimes more than the inquiry piece. And uh, in the case of our sources, again, you have to understand why the historian, as we would call them, is writing it that way. What is the, what's the arching story, the, 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 the overarching story that they're trying to communicate? And in, in the case of Cassius Dio, he basically writes this thousand-year history, right? It's, it's an amazing piece of work from the foundation all the way to his day, um, which is in the 220s. CE and you were talking about people like Commodus earlier, you know, he, so he sees all these things mm. and, and from him, he's a very proud provincial who becomes a senator and he wants to, he wants to celebrate the Roman achievement. Tacitus is writing from the point of view of a, a man disappointed by the time that he has seen how things are not like they used to be, but hey, we're living under Nerva and Trajan now, so maybe things will get better. And then you've got Suetonius, who is able to relate well, my grandfather was able to hear about the stories of, you know, uh, Caligula in those days when they were doing those crazy things. And, oh, by the way, I happen to be the personal secretary of the Emperor Hadrian, and I have access to all this stuff in the in the Tebellarium. So, you know, it's very interesting how the, these sorts of things come together to, to help us. But we have to understand the way they were written and the way they were written and what its purpose was. And then you add in things like archaeology and all the other things, epigraphy and the, the coins that, that help us to try and flesh out some of these details. But the frustration is we can't tell what's a story. We can't tell what's a fact. Of course, you can't always be sure that people see the same event the same way. So different tellings of the same event. Um, we were talking earlier about the way that Josephus, in writing, for example, the Jewish war, did so really to show the Flavians in this good light. He did, he did personally very well out of that. Uh, that, that that association as being uh, effectively uh, a client of the Flavian family, and in, in respect of the uh, of Tacitus, he was in a sense able to um, look in his own day and try and present that in a positive light because it was so much better. I mean, he he'd grown up under the Flavians, and now he was living under what we now consider to be the Antonines. So these were the so-called as 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 you'd give them the five good emperors and. He had to live under those days. So he, he was able to look back at times and try to understand them for what they were, um, knowing full well that the rest publica that he, he, he longed for was never going to come back because it didn't exist in his own days and they were the best days of his times. I think we're going to round it up there. I hope you enjoyed this two part of the recording down the stage, which you can now listen to back to back. And I highly recommend you do also check out. The episode we did on Germanicus, whom on the date of recording, which is 10th October, is actually the anniversary of his death, the day he died. And of course, we made an episode on Agrippa, on, not Agrippa, I'm sorry if I say that wrong, and which was also one year old, not a few weeks ago, which is again crazy to think about. But of course, before you go, do you have anything you want to promote? Where can people find you on social media if they have? 
Any further questions about any topics that we discussed this past two weeks and where can people buy your books if they are interested in learning more about some of other Neo-Leotardian history? Thank you. Um, well, it's been a pleasure. It really has been. I, I always enjoy our conversations because you just we, we, we go where the conversation goes and it, it's, mm. it, it's very wide ranging. We bring lots of subjects. Um, I'm active on X, formerly known as Twitter, where you can find me as at Lindsay underscore Power. I don't know if my X is there, but we'll see. <laughs> uh, I, I, I post things every day, um, things which are newsworthy, things which relate to my research, uh, anniversaries and that type of thing. So uh, follow me on there. If you're on Facebook, just look for Lindsay Powell Author. You'll find me and my postings there. Um, and I have a website, which is uh, lindsayandscorepowell.com. Don't use that so much, so I tend to be uh, an active user of social media. My books, look, 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 just for Lindsay Powell. You'll find them uh, in, in all the uh, major book websites, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters, uh, Waterstones in the UK, and many more indeed. And uh, my books are available not only as hardbacks, but paperbacks and digital books. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk to you again, and you're always welcome back on the podcast. We are, this has been with that age 12. We are available on, on Instagram with that age 12. Twitter, I'm still gonna call it Twitter, and, uh, and with that age 12 with one L, because I wasn't allowed to use two, unfortunately, the name was too long. But we are also available. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. Please write a review on Apple, Apple or iTunes if you have an iPhone or listen there. I know there are quite a few of you. I read up a review last week and I would love to do more of those. If I get more reviews in, that would be lovely. And if you're on Spotify, give us five stars. That would help us out a lot. Please like, share and subscribe. My name is Alan and I'll see you next time.